You know the name, you know the number. Welcome to episode 0017 of A Review to a Kill, our podcast series about the James Bond franchise coming to you from fanboysanonymous.com. Our Bondcast is rolling along. We're on my favorite movie. We're going to get real deep into this one, so strap yourselves in. I am Tony Mango. I've got with me a level two programmer, Robert Felice. I am invincible. And a stiff-ass Brit, Callum Wiggins. <laughs> what? No chit-chat? That's the trouble with the world today. No one takes the time today <laughs> to do a really sinister podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, welcome to what I think is the third review of Goldeneye on this very channel. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did a review about it and an audio commentary track already. And I still have tons of stuff to say, even more than I did before. So <laughs> Let's get some plugs out of the way, though. Don't worry, it's not going to be too long. I've set the timers to six minutes. <laughs> Reminding you that uh, if you enjoy this series and you want to let us know that you are, one of the best ways to do that is to leave a comment. Also, while you're doing that, tell us your thoughts on the movie. Tell us your thoughts on this podcast. Another good way to let us know that you're enjoying this is to hit the like button, hit the share button, and pass this along to other people that you think might enjoy it as well. If you are not already subscribed to the channel, do that. Ring that little notification bell. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to help us grow, donate to the Patreon. That is the best way to make sure that we grow and we do more content, not even just on the Review to a Kill side of things, but just more content in general. There's also the join button on YouTube, which is pretty much exactly the same as the Patreon. So if you like that more, you're a little bit more comfortable with the YouTube membership side of things. So the Patreon, that's another option for that. And basically, the more support in any fashion that we get from you, the more content that we can give you guys. And I think that that's uh, pretty self-explanatory, but it's always good to mention it just in case. And I think we should just kind of get things rolling along here the way that we normally do, talking about the titles and i was really disappointed i thought that there was a chance that this could have had a lot of just oddball titles and they were all just variations of golden eye and it's like gold eyes james bond gold eyes agent 007 the golden eye and i'm like oh that's boring the only one that was any bit interesting was the French Canadian title, The Eye of Fire. But that's like, meh. After we had the skin of a corpse and everything, you know, from some other movies. Very disappointed in that one. The name Goldeneye comes from Ian Fleming's beach house in Jamaica, where he used to write the novels. It was a contingency plan that the SIS had in the Nazi invasion of Spain. It's just kind of one of those things that you can't really, you know, it's not like like talking about murder or anything that you really have to try too hard to change. Most people would have ways to translate gold and to translate I, so they just did that. But I'm like, man, I, I wanted somebody to do like 007 and the nine-year commitment against the Cold War or something, you know? <laughs> Uh, 007 wins Baccarat, or, you know, um, once again, the pleasure was all 007s, something like 007 that. 007 goes out on top. <laughs> Nobody does it better 17 times. <laughs> <laughs> 007 owns space again, or whatever. The taglines were the one that I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know the name, you know the number. And the other one was no limits, no fears, no substitutes. 
again, not my favorite taglines. I think you know the name, you know the number. At some point, like, what else do you really need to say about Bond? <laughs> Just put up a poster and it says, it's Bond, go see it, asshole. <laughs> you know? Which, to be fair, you kind of where I am in the series <laughs> where, you know, when they started announcing that, like, The World Is Not Enough was coming out or Die Another Day was coming out, I'm like, well, no matter what it is, I'm seeing it opening night. You know, they're like, oh, Bond 23. I'm like, cool. <laughs> Give it a name, that kind of thing. Some uh, notes randomly before we get started on some other things, just because I didn't really have anywhere else that I wanted to put them in my other notes. This was the first completely original 007 movie. Instead of taking elements from previous Ian Fleming novels or short stories, they just started from scratch, basically. That's shocking and also kind of comforting because this was a great, great film, and maybe that's part of the reason why. Yeah, to bury the lead, this is my favorite of the Bond films. This is something that Rob is ranking extremely high, if not the number one spot. Callum, how are you feeling, generally speaking? Okay. So, I think in terms of all the Bond movies, it's the one with the most, I I guess, excellent action. The, I think there's very, very good cinematography in it. And Pierce Brosnan plays Bond pretty much how you would want a James Bond to be played. With kind of that, both that cold calculating thing, but that also wit about it. But I also believe that the overarching action and more fluidity of the movie compared to things we've seen in the past over covers over a pretty thin plot. Fair enough. That, that uh, would be my, that'd be my overarching assessment of it. I think it's, I don't say it's the weakest plot out of all the Bond movies and it's definitely not the most incoherent pl- plot of all the Bond movies. But I feel like it's some, it's, it's again, it's one of those things we spoke about in some of the other Bond movies where they have a really good idea and I just think it's poorly executed in places. I guess that's fair. It's my overall takeaway is this is the best coming together of the Bond formula and specifically the, the character feels the most whole that he's felt in quite a few movies. I usually assess GoldenEye as. Almost every element of the Bond series that we break down, there's a movie that does something a little bit better. But I think that this is the this is the overall package kind of a thing. Like it might not be a ten out of ten score on all uh tests that I would put on it, but it's the one that's gonna get an eight out of ten or a nine out of ten. And then all of that just kind of uh, builds up because maybe a movie like, like I, I'll I'll talk about this. Like, I don't like the music in this one as much. I don't think Eric Serra was a great choice to do that, especially not compared to like the Living Daylights. I love the score for the Living Daylights. So Living Daylights score, 10 out of 10. Golden Eye one, nah. But 
I've got a lot of GoldenEye songs. So it ends up being like the overall package. This is the one movie that I always recommend to everybody. I go like, if you are going to like a Bond film, more than likely you'll like this one. You might watch A View to a Kill and it might be too silly. You might watch From Russia with Love and it might be too boring. That kind of a thing. Usually everybody agrees. GoldenEye is one of the good ones. I can't imagine. I actually don't think I've ever come across anybody who didn't like GoldenEye. Now I'm thinking about it. I was, checking, I was checking out some of the um, the positions where it's ranked on like these uh, again these these bomb movie tier list. I saw anywhere between about third place in the overall rankings to about ninth or tenth. Really, that's a lot lower than I thought. Yeah, well, I think from when I was doing um again just a little bit of just avid looking into just the overall reception of the movie, people had similar. So people that. I don't say didn't like it, but didn't gravitate it towards it as well as you two have had the same similar issues to me, which is the fact that the plot is pretty thin. And I think, yeah, I think it was probably just maybe they felt it was a bit of a return to, okay, this is the Bond name. This is the first movie in what six years, was it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so maybe it was just, I feel like it was a bit of a, an all flash, no substance type of return. So my issue with that is, uh, have you seen like some of the more films? Like this plot isn't great, but it's not like an abomination. Some of these films are absolutely ridiculous. I don't think now is the time to start nitpicking. Yeah, but the plot isn't there. You well, know, I th- I think there I think it is a time to start nitpicking that because these movies once they get to this sort of age is the time where they can start to really cover things over with amazing special effects, better action sequences, put more budget behind all of that stuff than that all the other previous movies could hadn't possibly um, like even dream of having that amount of money thrown in at them. And so with that in mind, your plot has, to, if your plot is anywhere for, like falters and it makes you feel like, okay, then maybe they could have done more of this. I think that's more damning than it is in the previous movies. Because the other previous movies don't have that other stuff to try and make up for it. I think they, uh, kind of lived or, they kind of lived or died by the strength of the characters and the plot. I think I that know. the the argument of a, a weak plot kind of thing, maybe it's a little bit of um, favoritism bias and everything. I tend to think that. Well, I guess we'll get into it. We'll get into it because. Because you would say that it's a good plot because you like the movie, whereas well, a lot of people who didn't like the movie would say it's not a very good plot. Well, that, I was going to make the argument against the movie, actually. I was going to say mm-hmm. one of the problems I would think is you don't really get to know the villain's plot until three quarters of the way through the movie. But at the same yep. time, I don't think that the movie is necessarily about that as much so then i i make more of an argument of i i forget which movie it was but one of them uh recently i was making it probably was license to kill where uh i was saying well it's more about such and such and then that's why i kind of forgive it you know yeah it was license to kill because i was saying it's more of a revenge plot kind of a thing and this is more of like um not a revenge plot necessarily but you know kind of along those lines where it's like oh, eventually when you get to the plot you're like Okay, that's the bad thing you got to stop, but yeah. I did. I feel like this is more of just 
bond is an institution. So uh, to me, as long as the bond performance is strong at this point, it should be all right because you know what you're getting. It's not like it's like watching one of the Fast and Furious movies now. Those movies make no fucking sense. I still haven't seen any of them. (laughs) At this point, if they're going to go to space and fight dinosaurs, like, whatever. (laughs) It's just furious. We'll find a way to make sense out of it. The dinosaurs are going to be new additions to the family. (laughs) Let me me put it this way. One One of my biggest nitpicks of the entire movie is to do with Bond's relationship with Trevelyan which I know we'll obviously get into as we go through the movie. But my biggest issue is the fact that they try and build up this whole narrative about the trust they had with each other and the, the backstory behind it. And realistically, you see three minutes of them on a on a previous mission in the opening, and that's it. But you don't actually hear anything about their backstory, previous missions they've been on, things like that. And I know, again, I don't want to extend the runtime by about four hours or anything like that, but... You, if you're going to tell that as like a big integral part of the story about how they trust each other and how Trevelyan's gone behind his back and proven to be evil this entire time, then you need to elaborate that on that a little bit more because otherwise it feels empty. So I'll make a, an argument against that when we get to it because I do have an argument against that, I think. Um, let's barrel through a couple of these other notes. Uh, this is the most successful Bond film since Moonraker since that one just made a butt-ton of money. It's the first Bond movie that was on DVD. John Woo was offered the chance to direct. He was mm-hmm. uh, he did Mission Impossible 2, and he loves doves. So we would have seen lots of dove action in this, which would have gone from pigeon and pigeon and pigeon and pigeon to a whole bunch of doves, <laughs> if that would have been the case. We would have gotten, certainly, like, you know, gun-fu moments and stuff. I don't think John Woo would have done a, a great Bond film. He's done great stuff. You know, I just don't think he's a good fit for it. Uh, this is the last Bond movie that Cubby Broccoli saw before he had passed away. So I think this is a great way to end off his kind of tenure of doing 16 other movies. This is the first time that his daughter, Barbara Broccoli, was brought on as a full-time producer and then going on throughout the whole rest of everything. It's Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. None of the main characters who are Russian are actually Russian. Uh, Isabel Skorupko is Polish. Pomka Janssen is Dutch. Gottfried John is German. Uh, Why Plays Michigan is French. Robbie Coltrane and Alan Cumming are Scottish. <laughs> so there's not a single Russian dude in the main mix of that, which is kind of fun. Former Doctor Who Paul McGann was in the running to play Bond if Brosnan hadn't worked out. I've never seen him in anything, so I don't know. Liam Neeson was also in the running to play Bond. Don't think that that would have He could have fucking played Dalton's Bond. I think he would have been a great villain, but I don't think Neeson would have been a good Bond. Well, I'm just saying that the way that, like, for a license to kill, let's say, he could have done that. Yeah, maybe that. This movie has the largest amount of model and miniature work of any Bond film. A lot that I didn't even realize necessarily where I was just like, you know what? Like, that's that's a model. That's really good. Like, I, I thought that was a little bit of CGI or I thought this, I thought that, that kind of thing. Uh, Elizabeth Hurley was considered for Natalia. She is, oh, 
Good lord, is she attractive? <laughs> I mean, she she kind of gets to be in a Bond movie. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> I presume her uh, Russian accent wouldn't have been particularly good. So let's start off with a gun barrel. I think the music's kind of gross. <laughs> Didn't offend me. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit jarring compared to some of the other ones. It doesn't have the same sort of like suaveness to it. I really I like, like the. I do like, I do like Brosnan's stance. For the... Right. Yeah, that's my yeah. favorite stance of the uh, the gun barrel. He's got like a crisp cynical, snap right, of the gunshot and everything. Yeah. Like, I, Tom, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies is the one that is my absolute favorite gun barrel sequence. Again, I have a slight issue with it. Not obviously, I know obviously so much of the promotion has gone around like Brosnan back and stuff like that, as they were talked about with like, the trailers and things along those lines. But it would have been because they start with the movie with like you just see close up shots of. Bond's eyes and stuff like that, and you don't get to see his face until like a couple of minutes into the movie. So they're still doing that kind of thing, like, oh, it's a new Bond, so we have to tease before we see actually see his face. But then you've just shown him the gun barrel, so you know who <laughs> it is. <laughs> like, why do that? Eh, for fun, you know. I'm sure there's some people that wouldn't pay any attention. You ever see people that like show up like five minutes deep into a movie where they leave before the movie's over? That drives me crazy. I don't understand how people can do that. They're like, ah, it's just the first couple of minutes of the movie. I don't need to watch it. It's like, you're missing the whole, like, what, what, you know? Yeah, we'll never understand that. This is the first CGI gun barrel. I think it's pretty obvious because it's so much cleaner than everything else. You don't have to die. And there's any CGI in this movie. The, uh, the whole sequence of not seeing Bond's face. We get that recurring theme that we get with a lot of the other movies where the first time we're seeing Bond and whatever. He's running along the top of a dam in Russia before he bungee jumps off and gains access to a chemical weapons facility. This was the record for the highest bungee jump from a structure in a movie. 722 feet. And it was the first take. He narrowly got the gun out just in time before getting lost behind that rock formation or whatever. And the stuntman said, the last thing that popped into his mind before he jumped, you want to take a guess? Was it the rock? What do I eat for dinner? Beavis and Butthead. Yes. That's he just, the most 1995 thing you could possibly say. That's so just like, <laughs> I'm going to like uh, jump and I could possibly die because this is, you know, a dangerous stunt or whatever. And just like, Okay, you know, big uh, stunt, very dangerous, very important, and Beavis Butthead, okay! Like, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Maybe he just felt like he was one of Beavis and Butthead doing this jump. Well, and I also kind of feel like if your mindset going off this jump is I could potentially die, then you're probably in the wrong line of work. True. Then again, these I don't know how you can't think of that when you're doing these, that, you know? These people are built differently. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Bond works his way to the bathrooms where a guard's taking a shit and reading a newspaper and Bond slinks down and says beg your pardon forgot to knock Bam takes him out and that's our introduction to Bond it's that's that's so much fun it's a weird way to do it but it's so good that was the moment that I realized I'm gonna like this Bond a lot more than I did Timothy Dalton's one 
Pierce Brosnan, I, I'm, well, let's just put it this way. You're going to hear a lot of, it's so good, <laughs> this from me. And he's just, he oozes charm. A line like that couldn't have been said by Dalton. And a line like that would have been too funny by Roger Moore. I would go so far as to say uh, Sean Connery couldn't deliver that line because then it would come off like he's not caring about it. But Brosnan figures out a way to do it where you're like, it just, it works. He's just got this machismo, bravado, flippant kind of thing that some of the other ones don't. Brosnan's so good. Underrated even. I'd go so far as to say people don't give him enough credit. That's a good way to introduce Bond, though. It's like, you know, a lot of the other ones, it's like, oh, isn't he so cool? He's doing this or whatever. And this one's kind of like, that's yeah, a little bit of a gag, but it's not making, it's not taking the piss out of the thing, despite the fact that it's in a bathroom. One of the yeah. things uh, that I love about Bond in this movie is that he just crosses everything off the list. Like in this scene, he's wearing a tactical black outfit. Later on, we're going to see him in a tuxedo and more casual clothes, etc. He's going around like uh, I love the shots of him working his way through the facility and he's got the gun with the silencer. So he looks menacing, but he's joking. And he's got the charisma behind him and all that. He really is like all of the elements. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with the most part of it. He He has the the perfect mix of being both like charismatic and charming, but also being portraying a character that's absolutely dead inside. Mm-hmm. So I've, I told you when I was watching, uh, I think he legitimately is just the perfect balance. Cause like Callum said, and even though we loved the Dalton movies, the, he was very wooden, you know? And, Brosnan just brings this character back to life, but he doesn't go full skiing to California girls, at least not that other day. Uh, You know, it's like, so good. Someone pulls a gun on him suddenly. Bond says, I'm alone, to response with his, like, uh, I never knew exactly what the line translates to or how it is in Russian, but it's like, (laughs) kajibash, everything. And the guy's just fucking with him. He says, aren't we all? You're late 007. They have a little back and forth. Had to stop in the bathroom. Ready to save the world again? After you 006. Cool way to start. Because it's, you know, oh my god, Bond's in danger. Oh, it's a buddy. Wait, it's 006? That's neat. And they already have a back and forth. You know, they're they're already fucking with each other. One point towards the argument that I'm having about the... uh, (laughs) relationship between them because you start off with they're cool enough that they can do that and it's not an issue uh i I guess you could make that argument i would say that you probably would do that any point in time in uh, again i I know that he's obviously worked with in previous incarnations of bond he's had more frosty relationships with uh other agents or people that he works with Mm -hmm. but I don't think that necessarily, oh, they're just bantering each other means that, oh my God, they're so thick as thieves. They've probably been uh, growing up together and stuff like that. And they've 
growing up to be massive friends on the force. It just means they've done missions together and they get on reasonably well. See, I always take it as they're not like they're so close that they're brothers kind of a thing, but it's like practically every agent that we've seen Bond involved with, whether it's Saunders or we don't get too much of a connection between him and Bill Fairbanks, 002, with the man with the golden gun. He's just sort of like, eh, what happened to Bill? He's dead. Okay. Hey, fuck the uh, Saida kind of thing. I feel like he actually got along with Alec, and that's why it stings so much later on, because it's like, ah, you were the one I liked kind of a thing, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, again, I, th- this, I mean, this sounds like it's way too over the top in the way that I'm thinking about it, but I almost feel like you needed to have 006 in a movie with Bond before this. Oh, it would have been better that way, yeah. Yeah, for sure. yeah and I know it would have been, yeah, and again, I know that's asking for a lot. And I think that that is part of the mindset going into this. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it was another agent that works with Bond that betrays him? And I totally understand that thing. I just feel like it leaves something to be desired. I think if you're going to go this route, go for the full way with it. Again, I don't want them to be like, just be talking about, hey, remember when we went fishing that one time while they were <laughs> trying to crack into this Russian place or anything like that? But you can talk a little bit more about, like, when, when um, again, I know I'm going back and forth in the movie in that regard, but when... M talks to him about um, Urimov later in the movie. And Bonds are saying, oh, Urimov, and talk about how it's not going to be personal and stuff like that. They could bring up a little bit more about his relationship with 006 there, rather than it just being like a really quick interaction between those two. They could be like, remember that time we went fishing? And Felix would be like, hey, fishing, I'm down for it. I get what Callum's saying, but I think it's definitely asking a lot from a series that's like, and now he's in space, <laughs> and now he's, you know, a cold-hearted killer. It's, But I, I do agree it would have been better. I think that's why in the... the License to Kill? Dalton, in the Craig films, there's all... It's actually, there's a continuity there, because they figured out, oh, that would make it better. Yeah, that does help. Well, it's also to their detriment when they get a little bit too much into it, but we're going to get into that when we talk about Spectre and it being like, everything's planned with whatever. And, you know, that kind of shit. But, uh, I mean, I talk about, cause obviously they meet up now and then they're going to try and complete their mission together. I would like to, like their interactions or at least their teamwork together was a little bit longer in this sequence as well. Just cause they kind of just, they immediately get to where they need to be and bonds immediately planting the bombs and stuff like that. while um, Trevelyan's taking pot shots at any Russian that comes anywhere near them. And just feel like maybe they could have done like some two on two fight sequences or something like that. Just show again that they're kind of in sync with each other and like they trust each other throughout all these missions. Kind of like the opening of Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, like that. It's a weird way to say, take take some notes from uh, Revenge of the Sith, but you know, there's a couple of scenes with Obi-Wan and Anakin at the beginning of that, yeah. Revenge of the Sith is... Like I know it's again it's a um it's a polarizing movie, especially anything within the prequels really. But I think it gets a bad rep- reputation, and it's actually been improved since the uh the sequel trilogy came out. Well, so. by proxy, because Last Jedi sucks. Well, exactly. <laughs> there you go. You got it in pretty early on this one. So this guy that we're talking about, he's Alec Trevelyan. He was named after a British movie censor in the '60s named John Trevelyan, who hated the Bond films for how Bond was always exhibiting, as he saw it, callous sadism and mindless violence. 
So they were like, fuck you, we're going to make you a villain. <laughs> Thing, which I think is petty and funny. Two which, pe- uh, which Bond films do you think he was referring to? Oh, uh, apparently, like you know the like the Connery ones and stuff, because it, it was back in the sixties. Oh, really? Wow. He was doing this, so he was looking at something like I don't know, say Goldfinger, and being like, "Oh, this is so callously violent and whatever." And it's like yeah, he, he slapped a dink in the butt in the movie. Like, come on, it's not really that bad. We did right pool then. That's more of the callous part, yeah. <laughs> Two of the people that were up for the part of uh, Trevelyan were Anthony Hopkins was the first choice. And uh, obviously the part would have been a, a, an older mentor figure instead of like a partner. And they would have called him Augustus Trevelyan. But he turned it down. And another one who turned it down was Alan Rickman. I mean, to be fair, he's the main villain in Die Hard. So if you want to get him in a Bond movie as well, that would be. He turned it down because he said he just didn't want to play another bad guy for a while. Oh, it was just a couple more years then before Snake turned up. <laughs> right, yeah. Because like, he's yeah, good to go. Alan Rickman's a bad guy in nine out of ten of his movies. And when he's not the bad guy, he's like, oh, that dick, but he's a good guy kind of a thing. He just has one of those voices. Yeah. Just like it's it's just one of the people that are just unfortunately typecast in that sort of role. And to be fair, he's a good guy by the end of the Harry Potter series. Yeah. So. Alan Rickman is a guy, he's kind of got like that resting bitch face sort of thing going on. It's hard not to want to make him a villain. Just like apparently it's hard for Sean Bean to be in a movie and people to not go, we gotta kill him in some way. <laughs> Cause this dude dies in every movie. Mm-hmm. That's like his his trope is that, you know, Sean Bean's been cast. Okay, well, what part is he dying in it? Kind of a thing. And he had auditioned for Bond in The Living Daylights. That's why they cast him in this, because they were like, we want somebody who could have basically been Bond. Yeah, he mm. does have that kind of attitude to him. I just don't think that he... You know how we talk about uh, we talked about in the previous movie about how like Sanchez has that kind of... the quippy nature to him. Mm-hmm. I don't think Trevelyan has that in his locker. Definitely yeah. Would have fit in as the, uh, he w- definitely would have fit in as the more callous, um, get to the point Bond that uh, Dalton was portraying, but uh, I don't think he would have worked as an overall package as James Bond. He is such a great actor, though. He is somebody who, I don't know why he isn't in more things. We get a trademark line that's going to come back a bunch throughout the movie. Where he says, James Franklin. Franklin Alec. And 006 isn't fucking around. No less than 10 seconds later, he just casually walks up to a scientist and kills him. <laughs> I always thought that that was pretty, like, kind of odd. That well, shot. That's your, that's your first sign that he's a villain. But even the way that Bond acts in that, I always thought was a little bit weird. Because they they run in this hallway, and then they they go and they start walking slowly. And Bond just walks by and just is like, yeah, Trevelyan's going to do his thing. And he just walks up and shoots the guy. And it just seems like, I don't know, in that kind of scenario, Bond would have been like, let's knock the guy out or let's whatever. And it's just, that always struck me as kind of like, oh, wow. Okay. You know? And then, of course, in the game, you're like not supposed to kill the scientists, you know? Minimize uh, scientists, civilian casualties, that kind of thing. Mm. 
They get into a room with a bunch of canisters. Bond says, it's too easy. And he's right, because we'll ever find out that this was all set up. Alex says, half of everything is luck. Bond says, well, what's the other half? Well, he goes to the other half, and he goes, once the alarm goes off, fate. Always like that. Half of everything's luck, the other half's fate. Because it's such a defeatist kind of do-nothing sort of phrase, you know? Yeah, but I think there's situations where that definitely applies. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes that really is all comes down to in life. Uh, Alex, uh, Alec tells Bond to set the timers for six minutes. Got to be an important plot point. In come a bunch of guards, along with General Urumov. And another noteworthy line, showing their back and forth, they've got this rhythm between them. Instead of saying, like, uh, hey, the guards are almost here. Stall for a little bit more time while I set the charges. They have this thing of closing time, James, last call, buy me a pint. So it's like they've got their shorthand kind of thing. I, I uh, guess, yeah, again, it, it does show like they do have a kind of kinship or relationship to it, but I kind of feel that's just how Bond interacts with people. He says like a... He's historically done those sort of lines where he's not actually, instead of saying, oh, God, the guards are coming in, stuff like that, he'll just say, oh, it's getting a bit drafty in here. Or yeah, something like that. shut that the door, nice. Alec, there's a draft. Yeah, and just Alex is kind of in on it. So, again, it shows that they do have a bit more of, they're, they're a bit closer than probably other people would be in these sort of missions scenarios because Bron would probably say a line like that and they'd probably say, can we be a bit serious here? We've got, there's tons of Russians running into the <laughs> building trying to kill us. But, um, All the more they, reason they, why probably nobody in MI6 really likes Bond, because they're just like, this dude jokes around on missions. Like, I don't want to yeah. hang out with him. <laughs> and he steals the weak girl at the end of it all the time, too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Somehow, we don't see how, but Trevelyan is captured, and he's on his knees. Ormov's gun's pointed directly at his head. Alex says, finish the, James, uh, finish the job, James, boil them all to hell. When Ormov starts counting, meanwhile, Bond changes the timer of one of the bombs to three minutes instead. Big plot point, of course. And Alex's last words are for England, James, one more time, and he gets shot in the head. Now, we're going to come back to this because this is one of my absolute major gripes about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I can see where it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Or Mav Wisely doesn't want people to shoot at Bond and blow the gas tanks. So he shoots a guard. Again, we're going to come back to this. <laughs> uh, and Bond finds a way to escape through this conveyor belt and shooting some canisters down, which is a great little moment where all of the, you know, the action has stopped, all the music stopped, and he's just wheeling this little cart, just kind of thing. I love that little bit. I love the, the guard getting all shaky and just accidentally firing. Like he's just sort of like, uh, ah, I'm going to shoot him. Kind of thing. <laughs> like, great little moment of tension. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is, it is very well done that Ormov obviously wants Bond captured or killed, but he's not stupid enough to shoot that stuff. And then the, the little one Russian that's jittery and does fire and stuff like that. And he's immediately killed. It's just, yeah, villains being making themselves bigger villains by killing other villains. And he heads off to the runway level of the video game. Great music in that one. One of my favorite levels. That's the one I always used to play where I would just put on like infinite uh, ammo, all guns, 
and just walk around and just kill people the whole entire time, just over and over until I got tired of it. That's healthy. I also love the shot of the guard running and then jumping in the air when he gets shot. <laughs> like they show the guy, they set it up. It's practically a double take type of thing. It's like show the guy, show Bond, then show the guy, and he's just like, <laughs> like. I've never been shot. I don't plan on being shot, but I would assume that I wouldn't jump into the air forward to get shot. That dude's overacting like all hell. <laughs> Bond chases after an airplane on the runway. He wrestles with the dude on the motorcycle, speeds off the cliff where he has to free fall down into the plane, get it back up in the air and off to safety as the facility explodes behind him. They did seven takes of this. And uh, Martin Campbell was like, so eventually there were seven motorcycles just down there that they had to clean up. <laughs> I I wasn't um, very I, I didn't like the special effects of him fall like the whoever it was in free fall reaching the plane. I think it stood out very clearly. It's got OK, this is mid 1990s. And it's like, no, it's not going to be like completely crisp or whatever, but. It was very evident that, hey, we've got our hands on CGI now. Let's try this. And it didn't work for me. You mean for the actual motorcycle bit? No, the actual motorcycle thing I know is a stunt. But when he when the body is actually free-falling alongside the plane. Oh, oh that the green screen thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, I didn't like that at all. Yeah, the, well, I yeah, mean, the green screens are notoriously kind of flawed. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, and there's a couple of scenes in this movie where I'm just like, ah. Still can't quite get it 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, did, it does fit with the franchise so far. So it, it is too tight at this point. It's just like, oh, we've got this really cool idea, but we can't quite execute it perfectly. Yeah. But we're going to do it anyway because it's cool. <laughs> and the cloud of fire transition us to the opening theme song. And before we get into that, this is my favorite opening action sequence. This whole facility thing, all that stuff, the the plane and a motorcycle and all that. I think that that's just the best. Yeah. And we're, we're in full, like, all right, action movies, not just bond movies. Now action movies have a formula. They have, you know, stuff to live up to. And I think this film really hits home. Like this is a new era of bond. It's not just like, Oh, you know, I'm going to drop Blofeld down a, it's it was a good sequence and it set the tone for the movie pretty well yeah i i do very much enjoy the sequence overall again if i was to nitpick i would say that this is probably the big moment where you kind of go okay bond's not a spy anymore really Mm -hmm. he's an action star because even though he obviously sneaks into the thing and that's like the cool bungee jump down and gets into it but then he's just essentially he's got a machine gun and he's shooting the fuck out of everyone. He kills probably about twenty people in this entire sequence. Yeah, he kills more in this opening sequence than like Roger Moore in like three movies. Yeah, kind of thing. exactly. So it's so it's not really. I I guess the way it's, it's very more it's very more just like action movies of the time of just like okay everyone runs at you and they have uh I don't know how how how, how do you refer it as if like essentially stormtrooperitis <laughs> where we're like there's there's about 30 of them but they can't fire anything and so the one person standing on the other side is actually a really good shot and starts killing all of them one by one 
that that's basically what Bond is now in what throughout a lot of this movie you kind of typify him in that regard. Whereas in other ones he's more okay, sneak around, take one guard at a time. And if there is going to be a big action sequence, it's usually Bond and a bunch of Marines or a bunch of other people fighting alongside him, rather than him taking on an entire army on his own. And eventually it's going to get to the point where it's just sort of like this in comparison looks tame to some of the stuff that they do. Yep. Because that's then, one of the gripes I might have going forward. Then Bond's got like a pistol and they've got like rockets and he's just sort of like, okay, I can take you all out, you know, that kind of thing. Let's talk about our main theme. I always love the, even just the opening notes of just that, dum dum dum. It's just, I, I love this song. It's not my number one favorite. Not even my number one favorite out of the ones that we've already covered so far. And there's another one down the line that I put above this as well. But I, I think that this is one of those things that it, it feels very Bondian. Like the lyrics are kind of ethereal and a bit nonsensical, but that's kind of a little bit of the formula at this point. Tina Turner is filling in for Shirley Bassey. I get that kind of like, there's like a sensual element to it. There's a little bit of like a danger element to it. Very easy to sing along to it. Definitely one of my favorite ones. Uh, for the 90s, I don't think you could get anybody better to do this song. It, it's a little... I always take the lyrics as like, okay, Tina Turner, you were totally a little girl thinking like, oh, Bond is great. I'd like to end up with Bond one day in life because, you know, you never know how I watched you from the shadows as a child. Like, I like it. I it's definitely not my favorite. I've gone on and on about what my favorites are previously in the franchise, but this was a very good song. It's very middle of the road for me. I feel I, I do like the tune. I think it's very Bondian, as you say, but I don't like Tina Turner performing it. I'm not a huge Tina Turner fan in general, so I, and I don't, and I think saying that the lyrics are a little nonsensical is being kind <laughs> to it because it it seems to refer to Goldeneye as it's a person, right? In a similar way to Goldfinger, Goldfinger whereas Goldfinger yeah. is a person, whereas Goldeneye is a weapon. And so the way that she goes across it is just like, okay, it's a movie called Goldeneye, and she has she's been told zero context about what the film is about. It's Very like, Thunderball, right? It. Yeah. It's like yeah. he strikes like a thunderball. What is a thunderball? I don't know. Tom Jones, just go yeah. thunderball. We'll call it a day. <laughs> yeah. So I I like the the overall rhythm of it. So the actual tune behind it, I'm a big fan of. But yeah, the lyrics are t too far the wrong the wrong way for me, and I just don't like Tina Turner's performance of it. Now they were going to have Ace of Base do it. And I, I love me some, uh, some Ace of Base. You know, beautiful uh, life and everything. The song that they had made has some really bad lyrics in it. And I like the song a whole lot. Their song, The Golden Eye. Uh, and if you don't know what the song is and you can't find it, you can find it online. But uh, they took the song that had been rejected and they redid it and made the song The Juvenile. 
which is one of my favorite songs. I really love that song. But their lyrics are like this the the Tina Turner song has nonsensical lyrics, but I can ignore them for being like you know flowy and atmospheric and everything. Ace of Base had a line in there where's we're we're in the nineties. <laughs> that actually was part of the lyrics. It's like we're in the nineties. So, uh, Nothing is the same. The Cold War is replaced by different actors uh, using different names. And it's like you're gonna say we're in the nineties? No, <laughs> no, don't do that. Like <laughs> I think that's why it works better as. The juvenile, yeah, because it's none of that stuff's in there. It's a good song, and I, I do enjoy Ace of Base, and I like, like for the '80s, I like that they got Aha and Duran Duran. It feels like, oh, this is so '80s. Like it doesn't get more '80s than this. So that would have been a fun take on it. I think it would have been cool if they could have done the backup track. Like I keep saying, I like when the movies have like two themes. And this one does, but we'll get into that when we get into the end credits. The visuals, we've got, of course, naked women silhouettes and everything like that. But we got some weird stuff going on as well. We got a two-faced woman, a Yanis reference, who opens up her mouth and a gun pops out of one side. The other side's got a cigar in it. There are symbols of the Cold War collapsing, the Soviet Union, the hammer and sickle and all. Uh, statues that we'll see later on with, like, you know, Lenin and, and all that in the park. Apparently, a bunch of the still active communist parties were really upset about this. Not necessarily just because it was imagery of the Soviet Union falling, but because it was imagery of the Soviet Union falling because of women in bikinis. <laughs> That's how they saw it. They were like, if you're going to show it, it should be a government takeover or something. Bah, we're going to boycott the film babies <laughs> yeah they're not very caught up on metaphor are they right. <laughs> i mean it's not really a metaphor even it's just this is just what bond's interests are it's just it's hot women but we've just decided to add it with the imagery of the the soviet union collapsing but realistically if the entire bond franchise wasn't really held up with these sequences of having uh naked women dancing around then they wouldn't be there it would just be images of the, <laughs> the soviet union collapsing it's like one predicates the other Right. They've done 16 of the other movies beforehand. You know what you're looking at for a Bond thing. <laughs> Why would it be like, oh, they're doing that this time? Yeah, they did it all the other ones too. <laughs> yeah. They have to be babies about it. I love the uh, the shot of the guns floating in the sky with women dancing on top. That's my favorite shot of the whole part. Just cool shot. I like it. Yeah, I think overall this is where you can put the CGI graphics and stuff like that, and it really elevates the introductions beyond beyond like the wildest dreams that people could have done in the past. And I think it all comes together really well. It looks more atmospheric. It looks more epic than it previously has done, where previously, obviously, I like the fact that the Bond movies in the past have had this because it differentiates them from a lot of other franchises, a lot of other movies. That's a very Bond thing to do that no other real... Not many, not many other movies have done in the past, but this has just taken it up a step because they have access to better technology that allows them to do cooler things. The one shot I don't like is the gun coming out of the woman's mouth. 
It's a little bit weird. A bit. Yeah, that is like... <laughs> I understand the two-face aspect of it, and I'm perfectly fine with that Be Maybe they could have done the thing where the one woman on the side smokes the cigar, and then the smoke comes out the other woman's mouth. Mm-hmm. That'd be a bit more just palatable, but just like her, just she just dislocates her jaw like a yeah. and gun comes out of it. It's just, okay. That's the thing that's more upsetting about it, is how far wide her head, uh, her mouth goes. Because it's not like the gun just sort of pops out. It's like... Full-blown, you know, Jurassic Park or something, you know. So we skip nine years later, which is still just like, oh, wow, okay. Kind of nine years later. He looks pretty good for aging ten years, you know. Yeah, so I'm tr- I was going to try and think about that because... So if we were to take the mindset of this is happening, obviously, post-Cold War. They, they reference that in the movie. So it has to be post-1990, 1991, at the very late, at the very earliest. So let's just say that it is taking place in 1995. So that means that this movie is, well, this incident took place in 1986. Mm-hmm. So this basically means we're wiping out everything that happened with Timothy Dalton. Kind of, kind of not. It's that whole thing with the Bond series where it's like, we know you've seen those and they're con- uh, they're in canon, but they're not because it wouldn't ever make any sense kind of thing, you know? I look at it, uh, 86, so that's between uh, Voodoo Kill and Living Daylights, yeah? Yeah. So you could just say this is a mission that happened... In between those films. A little bit before Living Daylights or something, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And his face completely altered in between the two. (laughs) Well, he he was considered. Was he not considered for Dalton's spot? Yeah, he would have been if the Remington Steel thing wouldn't have worked. Yeah, so I just got Remington Steel to fill in real quick for uh, 007. Remember, he was also 29 back in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> so it's also like, I'm, yeah. No, I'm not. I, I totally understand that. It just feels like it's very deliberate that they say nine years. Because that, that is specifically right at the point between the Moore movies and the Dalton movies. They could have said it was 11 years ago. Yeah. I mean, not, realistically, they should have said it was about five or six years ago because Bond hasn't aged that much. I always think it's funny when they do that in movies where they don't just say several years later. Because several, you can just make it whatever. Like, in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man Homecoming? Yeah, Spider-Man Homecoming. They say eight years later, and ever since that movie came out, people are like, yep, you just, that that doesn't work with the math. Because then that means that Peter Parker is this age instead, and whatever. Like, they just, they would have been better if they would just would have said several years later. Years later. Yeah. They would have had to put some kind of thing about years later just to show that, like, things changed and whatever, but very specific about nine years. Also, can I also, and it's might come across as a dumb question, it may show that I wasn't paying as much attention as maybe I should have done. His name's James. <laughs> God. God. God damn it, I've been uh, issue the entire time. Like, ah, oh, it's uh, Phil. Do What's we know why Bond, do we know why Bond was there? But the the facility in the opening sequence, yeah, is ever explained what his mission was? He's blowing up the chemical weapons plant just because in Russia they've got like 
chemical weapons and they're going to do like a bio kind of okay. thing. It's just it's one of those things where it's like Russia bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, it's just slightly weird because obviously in the more recent Dalton movies, there's a bit more of a a closer relationship between Russia and at least at least in certain part. I mean, obviously we know that um, in a, the living daylights, it's a bit more obviously very anti-Russian in aspects of it, but but um, but yeah, but yeah, it seems like there's been a bit more of a a foring of those relationships, and then it just is blown right back into it. It's like saying, okay, in 1986, this is what's happening. This is uh, still after Gogol was like, ah, this guy's cool, but not quite enough for him to be hanging out with Kara, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the food here is horrible. Um, if you recall on our review of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I said that that wouldn't be the first time that we would start a film, relatively speaking, with Bond on a winding road being passed by a beautiful woman in a red car with a flowy outfit of sorts. And here we go. <laughs> it's that whole like, man, if you if you go and this, 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 and it all still lines up, that's kind of crazy, you know? Like the uh, thing we're going to get into in the next movie about blonde-haired people. Bond is in his Aston Martin DB5 speeding along the girl in the car with him named Caroline. Not that you would know that because her name isn't said in the movie, but her name's Caroline is all freaked out and says that she enjoys the spirited ride as much as the next girl. But, and then up pulls a total Fox (laughs) and a Ferrari. The next girl. Ah, Famke. So, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, it's hard, it's hard to really just put into words that she, that she is as hot as she is deadly. Oh, like yeah. she looks, <laughs> like she looks like when she pulls up there, she looks like your your your. Like, I, I had to describe your dream girl and your nightmare and your biggest nightmares have just collided, <laughs> and you're both turned on and terrified at the same time. Yeah. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. <laughs> She is Jesus, so fuck. sexy in this movie. And if you don't want to hear about how crazy attractive she is, I apologize because we're just going to be harping on that a whole lot throughout this movie. Yeah. And like, again, like, sorry, but geez. And I'm not a car guy at all, but the fact that she's in this like red Ferrari is very much like. That's the that's, that's the type like, of thing where people would be like, okay, the car is sexy, she's sexy. That's just like sex on wheels kind of a thing. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's backed up by horrendous music. Oh my god, it's the worst piece of music and uh, easily the worst piece of the entire mu- movie. But it's one of the stupidest things in the entire series. Because it's like it's supposed to be playful and everything, and it is a playful song, but it just, it does not fit. I don't know how the hell they didn't tell Eric Sarah to just do another song. Because it's like, dude, what fucking movie am I watching? You know, I I want somebody so badly to rescore that and put something up on there. It's a shame they couldn't have gotten David Arnold one year ahead of time. Because David Arnold, try when we're watching the next movie really try to listen to the music because the next movie has some of the absolute best score. It's just amazing. 
this is terrible. It's that single musical piece is probably my least favorite part in the entire movie. Like every aspect of the movie. It's probably that. Awful. And it would work fine in a different movie. It's just, it's uh. So Bond and this babe have a friendly race. They knock over some cyclists. One of them is the director, Martin Campbell, just for a little cameo thing. And Caroline is supposed to be evaluating Bond, and she says that he's showing off the size of his his. He goes ego uh, engine. She goes ego. <laughs> I like the little banter back and forth. Yeah, and uh, it was at this point, or really more when we get towards M. But I think I sent Tony a message. It was just like, okay, is the whole movie just Bond has to become comfortable taking orders from women? Because this is very that much Tenji like... Rob? What? That Tenji? No. <laughs> I, no, I, I love that aspect of it. The fact that, like, like she tells him to stop towards the end of the, the race, and this is like, I have no problem taking authority from women. I just went, ah, oh, that's a good reference for what we're going to see later on. That's uh, That was clever. Mm-hmm. I did like that. But, but, like, my thing was, it's 95. Are you telling me, like, women weren't in powerful positions long enough that, like, they harped on it so much. I was yeah. like, geez. Well, the original lyrics were, we're in the 90s. Women are in powerful positions. And <laughs> so that they, I guess they wanted to like hammer home that point because like, like most forms of entertainment, they think people that are watching it are stupid. Mm-hmm. So they have to like yeah. knock it into your brain to saying like, yep, like Bond is going to be taking orders from women now and you've got to, to, got to get used to it. And the kind of, uh, you get ahead of the game so people don't complain the opposite way kind of a thing, too. So she, actually, before I forget, the the Ferrari was rented, and they dented it, and they had to spend 80 grand to fix it. It's, it's nice to know, like, where your taxpayers' money is going. Yeah. $80,000 to fix a dent in a Ferrari. I'm like, Wow. Again, I'm not a car guy, but I can't imagine being like $80,000 to fix a dent. I can't imagine paying half that much for a car, let alone that much to fix a dent in a car. I'm the type that I'm like, you know, one of my old cars, I'm like, oh, I got scratched. Well, I guess I have a scratched bumper now. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Like, Caroline says, stop this car at once. Bond slams on the brake. Dick move, but I find it funny. You know, just to kind of find it. Right. <laughs> kind of thing. He has no problem with female authority. He pops up in a chilled bottle Bollinger with some glasses, a little product placement to get a little bit more of that 80 grand back, you know. And she melts immediately. James, you're incorrigible. Uh, he says, let's toast to a very thorough evaluation. <laughs> Brosnan's bond is smooth. Yeah. Yeah. But and the women that he interacts with are very easy. <laughs> well, at least in this case. Because um I'm kind of see like what they have to do, some requisites to hire these people. But she's been hired to evaluate him, actually do a proper psychological evaluation, and he's just immediately <laughs> like 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 within I don't know what was the interaction. It's like, okay, why don't we drive somewhere so you can do the evaluation and then it's like immediately doing this and then, okay, let's have sex and move on. It's very I, Bond. I also think it's kind of funny the implication that, like, a lot of the other times that we've seen Bond with somebody 
it's been like, okay, she's in my hotel room or while we're in this, like, uh, in this boat in the middle of the ocean or whatever like that. Bond is like on a public road in broad daylight. (laughs) And it's like, is he just like banging this girl (laughs) or any of the cyclists can go by and be like, uh, Hey, look what they're up to (laughs) kind of a thing, you know? It's not, it's not a big car either. <laughs> That's true. It's got enough room for a stick shift. <laughs> Has it got room for two? <laughs> <laughs> so we go off to the casino for some Banco Banco Sweevy. Uh, My favorite. I have a note here that just says, how good does Brosnan look in that tux? I mean, come on. <laughs> This is very much like... I get why the women are so easy kind of a thing. <laughs> I imagine at this point you're, what, like 12? And you're watching this and you're thinking, yeah, that's what I want to be. Like, Right. <laughs> it's like, if I could ever be that, then I win life kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too much of what was at one point the epitome of what a man should be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else is that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I don't like the exuding of that sort of like not the cheese aspect of it, but sort of like that assertion of like, oh, that's what a quote unquote man should be. I think that's something that's is the is the ship that caused the again, not to get too dark, but it's a ship that launches like a thousand suicides every year or something like that. That's all this this perception of what a man should be. But I can totally get the idea of like this, like this, this suave, sophisticated guy coming in. It's sort of like, yeah, that's that's like what you want your bond to look like in these things. It's just like, yeah, he could be again in the rough and aggressive situations, can be more physical, more rugged, that sort of thing. But then when he comes in, he just cleans up very nicely. Yeah. Well, and to your point, like, yeah, you know, I think we've established we're not like the pinnacle of machismo on this panel here but <laughs> as you look at this, hey what are you like, talking about <laughs> it's, it's like yeah that is the exact image of what they were going for and what it yeah. quote-unquote should be yeah i'm not i'm not trying to critique it in that regard i'm just saying that there is this typified thing which does can be damaging to certain people's mental image of themselves when they see someone who looks that good but then again that's what a lot of movies do anyway because movies especially these type of movies they show Fantasy. People that you just don't see in real life. Yeah. That type of thing. Like you would never see someone who looked as good as Bond looked in that tux in real life. Yeah, God, if you go to the casinos in Atlantic City, <laughs> you do not see that. You see overweight wearing shorts, somebody who, who has more like Andre the Giant towards the end. You, you start seeing more cherished JW Peppers. <laughs> You yeah. see James Bonds, you know? Yeah, you, you just imagine, like, this guy walking in and you just go... And, like, you just reevaluate every choice you've made in life up until that point. <laughs> like, why don't I look like that? Why don't I not walk into the room and everyone turns their head at that? So I, I get that. He does own the room with the way that he walks in and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's, like, uh, this is the type of thing that, obviously, to a thousand magnitudes higher, that women see when they like they look at a magazine it's like there's Kate Beckinsale and they're like well what am I going to do I'm never going to look like that kind of a thing because it's like yeah. you look at you look at Brosnan in this and it's like yeah 
no suit will ever, ever look that good on me. <laughs> like, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, you always get the feeling of, like, that suit feels like this is the best day of that suit's life. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the extras in the background of this is Kate Gason, the daughter of Eunice Gason, who was Sylvia Trench. And ah. another woman in the background, she won a contest during the promotion of License to Kill that had promised her a part in the next Bond film. <laughs> Oh, so she had to wait six years to do that. At least, at least they, at least they want to do. Yeah, yeah. that is good. She's, uh, if I'm correct on there, she's the one that's in the shot uh, when they're playing baccarat, and she's wearing like a gold dress, and she's you can like see her cleavage pretty well and everything like that. So it's like, hey, you know, she stands out kind of. Speaking of looking good though, Famke Janssen, man. Ah. Uh. Again, I, I've never been at a casino and seen a bombshell like her wearing an outfit like that with half her chest exposed. <laughs> I would remember if I had seen that any of those Maybe things. we're doing it wrong. We go to the wrong places. What are we doing here? What's, what's Between uh, all the ones in Atlantic City that I've been doing, a couple in Pennsylvania, yeah, there's never been a FOM game like that. Because you see her and she's just, she's got that cigar and I don't think cigars are like a sexy thing that's not my thing but just i mean come on <laughs> like, oh yeah absolutely <laughs> again talking hot there's just the case of you know by just the i mean it's something to do with the makeup obviously the fact that it's a black dress and all that other stuff you just know that she's she's evil from the moment you see mm. it it's just and, and again that that comes across very well you're like you don't get any sort of impression that this could be this is the bond girl like yeah, impression of like, okay, this girl is someone that Bond's gonna fuck, and then she's gonna fuck him over. That's <laughs> and and again, that sort of thing kind of comes off. It kind of comes off, but it doesn't really. There's a bit of a uh, difference to what would usually happen. And sort of joke about comes off. Uh, <laughs> they have this little exchange. It appears we share the same passions. Three anyway, and she says, "I count two: motoring and baccarat." Now, technically, you can kind of say smoking cigarettes, but that's more of Roger Moore's bond. So, yeah, whatever. And uh, she says, I hope the third's where your real talent lies. And bond quits back. One rises to meet a challenge. <laughs> it's everything. It's everything. It's Come on. Back and forth. This movie is one of the best ones when it comes to that, where it's like they took every chance they could to toss those lines out. She also, uh, she beats him, his hand of 007, she, uh, or he beats, uh, the opposite around here, she beats his 006 hand with a hand of 007, which is just like a little thing. And he wins the next hand, and she says something that I always thought was pliach, <laughs> but it's bliat, which means whore. <laughs> And she says that multiple times throughout the movie, just going, whore! I think it's fair to call Bond a whore. Yes. He's very much a whore. Yeah. I I love the pliat kind of thing. Even, like, better when I thought it was pliach. So I was just like, that's so weird. And we are in Innuendo City here. Bond orders a vodka martini, shaken not stirred, of course, so we get that line. He does the, you know, Bond, James Bond line. One of my favorite deliveries of that, too, the way that he says that. Uh, she says her name, too. Zenya Zergevna on a top. <laughs> on a top? On a top. <laughs> yep. Mm. 
on a top. <laughs> That's pussy galore territory. I I ain't complaining. <laughs> I do appreciate the fact that he asked for clarity. Yeah, just uh, on a top. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a, like, no, it's not. It's a, <laughs> I like that uh, when he orders this drink too, she says that she's going to have the same and he, he says, how do you take it? She says, straight up with a twist and he just smiles. <laughs> It's kind of like, ooh. Where does the twist come in? That sounds like it's... Uh, I'm assuming a twist of lemon. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely what we're talking about. Yeah. The court through dick, yeah. Just just a lemon, nothing more. No innuendo in that one, right? Not when she's holding a cigar and practically jerking it off. He calls out her accent as Georgian. She's impressed, and she's like, "Yeah, have you ever been in Russia?" And he says a great line. Uh, I used to go there here and there, shoot in and out. <laughs> it's just punch for punch. It's so good. They could have easily had him say oh, occasionally, but the shoot in and out. I actually didn't understand that the first couple of times that I had watched the movie because he says it as shoot in and out, and I'm like shooting in, what's shooting in or whatever, like. You've ever been to shoot it in Russia kind of thing or something, you know? But, yeah, you put the subtitles on it, it gets a lot easier. I love that Bond calls out her license plate, where he says, even the counterfeit ones start with L for this year. (laughs) Immediately, he's being an ass. (laughs) But he's so charming. It's not like... Like, he's not being a callous dick, and that's, like, where... I like Dalton, but Dalton was a bit more of a callous dick. Where it's like, this guy is just—he—he he really is everything a Bond should be. Yeah, if Dalton would have delivered that line, and again, I love Dalton. Dalton's, in many ways, my favorite Bond. Even though I, I kind of rank Brosnan overall package better. Um, Dalton's delivery of that line and Connery's too would have been very condescending, and more like mean whereas with Brosnan it's like it's a little playful you know and they go back and forth about that too what rank do you hold with the motor vehicles <laughs> and he says commander because he's a commander well this one's an admiral and he says I like a woman who enjoys pulling rank <laughs> nice to meet you Mr. Bond the pleasure I'm sure was all mine I'm one of the many lines that gets a callback they really love their callbacks in this one which I really appreciate that whole back and forth. It's just a great line one after another. I love that interaction. I I can't think of anything that's been like a better introduction to a Bond girl. Well, even though she's more of the femme fatale, but still like yeah. great. And like uh, Callum said, you know that she's evil. So oh, yeah, it's yeah. like they get that point across too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it it is a very good introduction to her character. So you you know she's going to be a fawn in his side going forward, or at least there's going to be even more interaction between them, and they have good chemistry with each other. You can tell. Yeah. Phenomenal chemistry. Then we get a weird mime performance. I wouldn't clap for it. <laughs> it's better than the freaking butterflies though in a Vita Kill. At least this one, there's like some talent that they have to kind of be a little coordinated instead of just, woohoo, I'm singing and the butterflies are floating around, whatever. 
it, it made me think that maybe you'd have some sort of like Roger Moore Bond villain. Maybe you could have done with there was a mime who tried to trap Bond inside a visible box. Yeah, and Bond would have oh just uh, like and Bond just walks out. Just, <laughs> you ever oh, see a uh, Detective Pikachu? Uh, yeah. No, I haven't seen it. There's a bit in it with Mr. Mime where they threaten to interrogate Mr. Mime and uh, they like threaten to light him on fire <laughs> with like a mime type of thing. It's fantastic. It's one of the best parts of the movie. Maybe they should do that in some kind of future Bond thing. Have Bond fuck around with that kind of a thing. Well, not you can't do it now. But it would have been great during the Moore era. Bond uses this little binocular camera casualty thing, one of the ones that nobody really even brings up, to snoop and take some pictures of Zinja's boat. I always love the sound of when he's taking the picture, just like the kind of thing. I like that when he gets to the car that they're printing out, too. And there's this little transition uh, transmission from Money Penny that they've looked into who she is and the boat and everything. She's she is Zenya's or Gabe on a top. She's connected with the Janus crime syndicate in St. Petersburg. Money Penny says, uh, M authorizes you to observe Miss Onatop, but stipulates no contact without prior approval. Good night, James. I trust you'll stay on a top of things. So we're yeah. getting our introduction to Money Penny in a weird way, but you can already tell they've got a nice back and forth. And they're already like trying to say, no, you're not just going to go running and sleeping with this person. But hey, I know you're going to, so <laughs> have fun. Like, Yeah, it shows that money, this Money Penny has a, a character to her, which is probably more than we said for the previous Money Penny. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and again, it wasn't fair. She didn't get a chance. But, like, this Money Penny was already better. Yeah, because she's. Money Penny should always fawn over Bond, but Caroline Bliss was written more of just fawning over Bond, more so than anything else. And we get a smash cut to Zinya in bed with Admiral Farrell. <laughs> she likes it rough. Yeah, she does. Too so, rough. So, so I was going to ask is this the first time in any Bond series we've seen someone have a sex scene that's not including Bond? Uh, maybe if you if you I don't know it kind of depends on what you would count because we don't really get to see that in like Thunderball for instance with Fiona and um, Lippy but we get like the post of that so like a true sex scene kind of then yeah I think it would be the first I mean I mean uh, there is like the um, the spy who loved me with Anya yeah true yeah, the start of it, but I mean, this is more. Yeah, this is more. This is more than the other ones. Yeah, it's definitely more. <laughs> uh, she gets him to the point where he says he can't breathe, and she strangles him to death with her legs while orgasming, and while somebody steals his ID. And that's the callback with that whole living daylights whole situation of this uh, Russian woman agent. Uh, assassin st- uh, kills people by strangling with her legs. So it's like, you could say that that's maybe the same character, even though she doesn't look anything like her, of course. What a way to die, huh? And if you if you got to go out, right? <laughs> I mean, you're going out. So you're not going out on top. I guess he died hard. <laughs> <laughs> Rigor mortis. 
<laughs> right as she's having her orgasm, we get a cut of a shot of a boat on the water for this innuendo that Martin Campbell on the commentary is disappointed that more people didn't make the connection. <laughs> He's like, ah, this didn't translate as well. I'm disappointed people didn't like my orgasm joke. It's like, well, it's a little bit more subtle than some of the other ones we've had in the past where it's been like, here's a submarine rising and, you know, like that kind of thing. Or a champagne bottle being uncorked or something. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> well, to be yeah. fair, it's her. It's not him that's getting that, so. Yeah. Because he's pretty... I don't know if he can still do that in his current state. <laughs> uh, then we get to the frigate level. <laughs> Bond snooping on the boat. Momentarily fights a dude, pats his face dry, that kind of thing. Just a funny little moment. And he discovers the Admiral's dead body in full, you know, rigor mortis. Giant smile on his face, because again, how do you want to go out? <laughs> the kind of thing, like, he's still smiling a little bit. And Xenia flirts with two helicopter pilots. One of them is the stunt double that did the bungee jump. He's the one that says, I think I've died and gone to heaven. That's that guy. And I like that little bit. Yeah, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Not yet. Bang. <laughs> so good. Everybody has quips. You know, <laughs> it's like it's quips all. You get a quip. You get a quip. That kind of thing. Actually, I don't think Ormov gets a quip, really. I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, Zenya and Ormov, although we don't see him at first at the time get into this experimental tiger helicopter it's immune to emp blasts they steal it from right under everybody's noses from uh lieutenant jean Valjean and whatever and that other kind of stuff uh francois and we see some doggos and we're now at the surface level of the video game and bunker because it's a twofer doggos establishing shot pays off pretty well too they're really good with like callbacks and stuff in this movie that i really appreciate that and we meet some of the tech support team, or at least three of them. Three of them have names. The rest of them don't. We get Natalia, Boris, and Anna. Natalia gets locked out of her computer because Boris fucked with it, made a little cartoon of her in a bikini with a giant rack, <laughs> and put a password on it. And it, I, I love everything about this interaction because Anna says he wouldn't know a woman if one came up and sat on his head. Instantly, in one line... We're fond of Anna. That's all she needs. And we're like, oh, I like her. Yeah, she knows this guy's a dick. And she's like, yeah. she's calling him out. And it's like, that's just some good natured ribbing. And then it immediately establishes that Boris is an absolute lech. Yeah. A human being. I think realistically, I know there are more serious and more despicable villains in this entire movie. Boris is the one that I want to punch more than anybody else. <laughs> but he's... So he's right up there for me with Nick Knack as far as, like, henchmen. This... What a character. Amazing. What, he understood his role and plays it to a T. He's, like... This is, like, the in, introduction to the computer age, kind of. I thought I'd post it on the internet. <laughs> it's so good. Like, he poses zero threat as a person whatsoever. Just, like, he's got no physical capabilities at all. He's a nerd. He's a, well, a computer programmer. He's obviously incredibly intelligent and knows that he's incredibly intelligent in that regard. But there's so much about him that makes him so unbelievably, like... Like, I would want to see him be... 
beaten up and taken out more than the people that are actually doing the killing of people. <laughs> just has that demeanor about him. I love that we we instantly like Anna. We instantly know Boris is somebody who's a piece of shit. We get to know immediately that Boris has a nervous tick that comes back later on the movie where he's twiddling a pen. A generic Bic crystal pen that I owned a bunch of after I saw this movie. Because I was like, I want to get a Boris pen. Is what we always refer to them as. I love that. Go ahead. uh, Does Q just happen to know certain things? (laughs) Like, what a specific fucking weapon. (sighs) It was great, though. I love that Boris teases Natalia, saying the password's so easy that this time that even she can guess it. Borscht for brains. It's like, again, it gets another call back later because he's talking down to her later on the movie going that she's not as smart of a programmer or whatever. So even in that line, it's like, oh, you've got borscht for brains, you idiot. I'll make it uh, uh, an easy one for you kind of a thing. So it's like, even though they're not antagonistic yet, he's exactly the same character through and through. There's no twist at any point where it's like, oh, he actually was a horrible person. No, he's a piece of shit from the start. Boris fucking sucks. <laughs> and the the password out of all the things, how do you unlock the thing? That he, why did he lock her computer to begin with? Why did he put his like creepy, pervy cartoon on there? Password hint, they're right in front of you and open very large doors. The answer, knockers. He's a jerk. He's an egomaniac, and he's a fucking pervert. <laughs> so by that logic, you love this character, huh? Boy, I fucking love Boris. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Boris is one of my favorite characters in the entire series. He's so fun. And he's hacked so his good. way into the U.S. Department of Justice because the Americans are slugheads. <laughs> They'll never detect him. And he gets detected. So he spiked him. Which sets that up again. It's like they, they know what they're doing here. And he doesn't get the, give her the password. He gives her a hint that we have to remember for later on. You sit on it, but you can't take it with you. Jams the modem so they can't so they can't shut up. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, better luck next time. Slugheads is a line that I really love too. Just, you know, <laughs> better luck next time. Slugheads. <laughs> And then he caps it off with something even better. His catchphrase, even more so than better luck next time, slugheads, pops up, I am invincible. It's so good. (sighs) Nobody sells it. Everyone's just like, that fucking douchebag is doing this again. (laughs) And then even better. It's like one stack, one after another. He says, was it good for you too? I'm going to go get a cigarette. I'm going to get a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, It's so good. There's 20 levels to this because it's like, the was it good for you too? Shitty line to say for that whole thing. You creepy pervert or whatever. But it also sets up that he leaves because he knows what's going to happen. And her going for the coffee. Perfect setup for her. It's like, it's just, they couldn't have done this better. Nobody does it better. 17 times. Uh, I just, I love this scene so much. It's real good. Especially for an introduction of a character, too. 
Like at that point on, you're like, all right, I want to see where where we're going with this guy, you know. And we get a uh, General Arkady Grigorovich Ormov, head of Space Division, showing up unannounced with a ruse that it's an unscheduled test and a war simulation to test fire the Golden Eye satellite. Since we have two eyes, Golden Eye is a two satellite deal. Makes sense. And then yeah. you fucking blows everyone away and has an orgasm. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I love that Ormov looks at her like, "Damn, girl." <laughs> yeah, at least it's consistent. <laughs> yeah. At this You're point, really I inadequate said... as a man that like you can't satisfy her unless you kill yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This might have been the point in the movie where I sent Tony a message that I will not repeat. <laughs> like, Zenya, Zenya was the perfect villain here. Uh, Natalia is able to trick Zenya by making it seem like she's climbed into the air vents, but she's really just hiding out in the cabinet of the coffee room. Doesn't stop Zenya from shooting it all up and doing a traditional Bond quip of saying, I had to ventilate someone. <laughs> She's on Bond's level. You can't yeah. deny that. No, we know that nobody does it better, but she does it pretty good. <laughs> well, we wouldn't know. Everybody that might have the answer to that is dead. <laughs> they set the tar- uh, target for the Severn Eye base, arm the weapon, and leave. We bounce around a little bit back and forth for the next couple scenes. Um, Bond's at MI6, our new MI6. The actual... MI6 building. I mean, they didn't film in there, but they filmed the outside of it. You know, that kind of thing. That's the MI6 building. I always thought that was a little bit like, oh, that's cool. Like, they could, uh, they could not done that already. Do that. Yeah. You know. There when you go. see things like that, what kind of a reaction does that get out of you, Callum? Because obviously you're much more familiar with a lot of those things than, than we are since it's not our country and everything. Well, I mean, I, I don't have a very strong connection to London or the MI6 building itself. I hate London. Despise being there. Really? <laughs> and any opportunity. Yeah, it's. I know people, when they just think about the UK in general, they just immediately, their mind just goes to London. They like just assume that, are you from London? If you go overseas or anything like that, because that's mm. the, only con- the only city they know. It's such a despicable, horrible place to be in the, especially the, (laughs) if you're in the West and Northern side, it's all like, it's all pretty. And it's like, that's the rich area and stuff like that. Then you go in the South and East areas and it's just horrible and grimy and it's full of, full of crime, full of just, yeah, it's, it's the area of London that people want to kind of forget about really. So So, for context. So it's New York. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, like any big city. It's like any big city. Everybody wants to go to it, Times it's... Square, but nobody's going to the Bronx at midnight for uh, a yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's any big city. It's got a very good. It's got very good parts of it that people just always tourists flock to and all that other stuff like that. And then it's got a really awful section of it as well that just nobody wants to avoid and everyone wants to avoid. And nobody would walk there late at night unless you have a death wish or want to get mugged or anything along those lines. <laughs> That's pretty much. And yeah, I don't like. Being there, it's too crowded. It's not my scene whatsoever. And so 
what if I see images of MI6 buildings? It's like, oh, that's cool. Why have they never in, in the like shown any signs of the MI6 building beforehand? That seems like it'd be a ridiculous thing. It's not like MI6 building has been hidden throughout all these years. Or it's this big underground network of buildings or anything along those lines. It's it's right there. You could just do a shot of it. But I can't say I've I can't say I've ever driven past or been in the same vicinity as the MI6 building. So like I know that when they show uh, the White House in a movie, it doesn't get any kind of a reaction out of me or anything. Because it's, but it's just like ah, it's the building, like that's the place kind of a thing. And uh, MI6 isn't you know the building in yeah. you know the uh, UK or anything like that. But it is kind of one of those like oh, it's one of those buildings, you know, like yeah. that's that's well, the thing. They're not even trying to pretend that it isn't at that point, you know. I think it's different. It's like if they showed imagery from somewhere close to my hometown, I'd be like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." They're showing they've done some filming over here. That's pretty nice. But if it's just like in London and stuff like that, so like, okay, well, I'm pretty sure ninety percent of films that are set in the UK show some imagery at London at some point. So, doesn't have an effect on me. So we also meet our new Money Penny, played by Samantha Bond. Kind of perfect, oh. isn't it? Bond, Samantha Bond. Yeah. I hope she did that every single time she came to shoot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, uh, she gets her call sheet, and she's like, no, you have to put Bond, Samantha Bond, not just Bond, Samantha, or Samantha Bond on there. No, you got to do it that way. She's in a black gown. Bond's hitting on her for looking so nice after hours. And he says, are you on a professional assignment dressed to kill? And she says... I know you'll find this crushing, 007, but I don't sit at home every night praying for some international incident so I can run down here to impress James Bond. I was on a date, if you must know, with a gentleman. We went to the theater, and he's like, oh, I'm devastated. What would I ever do without you? And she quips right back. As far as I can remember, you've never had me. It's weird that, like, I chuckled at the, as far as I can remember, like, listen, we know you're a piece of shit, and maybe you did something that I don't remember, but as far as I can remember, you've never had me. <laughs> he says, hope springs eternal, and she says, you know, this sort of behavior can qualify as sexual harassment. Now, at first, this seems cold, and, like, they're trying too hard to be like, ha, this money penny has balls of steel, and she has all the power in this relationship. We're switching up the formula, 180, and like overcorrection girl power type vibes, but it's quickly tossed aside because Bond asks, well, what's the penalty for that? And she says, someday you have to make good on your innuendos. Great. <laughs> it's a great yes. level of playfulness because it's it, that undercuts the whole thing. It's her being like, okay, she's not like, oh, this creep. It's just kind of like, you know, one of these days you're going to have to fuck me. <laughs> you know, if you're going to keep teasing me. One of the best money penny interaction since like lazenby mm. really good love yeah, it yeah it, yeah it is very clear but again there's some good chemistry between the two of them and they play up the the actual i I'd say tension but it's like the friendliness between the two of them but also the fact that there's this underlying sexual tension between them and to be fair it's a it's sexual tension that bond typically creates yeah, but money pennies, but money pennies game to it, and so like, okay, we're being friendly about it, but seriously, you're actually going to fuck me at some point. That's kind of the <laughs> overarching narrative you get from this, and that's good. They, I don't think, have any stronger reaction uh, interactions than this. Samantha Bond's a good money penny, but I do think that she kind of wanes a little bit as it goes on. They do have some good stuff. I really like 
for instance, there's a, a little bit in the world's not enough that I like quite a bit. Um, we get to see Bill Tanner return. You might remember him from such films as for your eyes only. I don't know why I did a Troy McClure thing there. <laughs> you might remember him from such films as for your eyes only and Alice's adventures through the windshield. Uh, he was the one that replaced M that whole situation where they couldn't get Bernard Lee because he had passed away. So they just had the Bill Tanner character, but he sucked in that movie. And this version is played by Michael kitchen and is my second favorite. If not favorite Tanner, I do like, uh, Rory Kinnear quite a bit. Admittedly, he's just kind of a generic government guy, kind of like the defense minister, but I like him. I think you need those characters. Yeah. I think he was quite good. It was just the, the the little interaction he has with Bond when he talks about obviously the helicopter stuff. So it's like, oh yeah, you actually you were right about all that, and then uh, yeah. this uh, money britches and stuff like that just wouldn't give you the uh, give you the go ahead, and then just immediately the, the turned around. The evil queen of numbers, right? Yeah, yeah. He says uh, he sticks his foot in his mouth by saying, you know, your your hunch about the tiger was right. They found the satellite imagery, whatever. It's too bad the evil queen of numbers won't let you play the uh, the hunch. And she's standing right behind him. I, lo- I love this introduction to M. Oh, it's so perfect. Like, Judy Dench as M. Is... Chef's kiss. Oh, she's she is such an awesome character because she, you can tell that she has a a vested interest in Bond. Not obviously not romantic sense or anything like that, but she cares about Bond in a degree and she knows he's the best that she's got. But she also knows that he's a dick and she mm-hmm. won't hesitate to call him out on being a dick at any opportunity. Even even her first line here, which credit to them, they could have had lots of blowback for it because there could have been a lot of people that would have been like, Bond doesn't take orders from a woman. But Judy Dench just slaughters it and has a great line of like, oh, you were saying? And he's like, "Uh, uh, no, I was just uh, just uh, just," and she's like, well, fine, because. If I wanted sarcasm, I'd talk to my children. Fucking that's <laughs> Yep, like perfect. Uh, like she's she's very chilly. And it's a cold way to do it. But she is so amazingly warm in how chilly and cold she is like that because her character never becomes a bitch. It's just that she's she's the woman in charge. And that's very hard to to go on that she, that line, you know? She she's intimidating and she's obviously in a big position of power and stuff like that, but she's not that isn't like she's a robot in that regard mm-hmm. or anything on those lines. She's not just, okay, that's my only character trait is that I'm mean to people and stuff like that. She is an actual rounded character. She's very she's she's playful and she's sarcastic when she needs to be and stuff like that. But then she's also, she gets more serious as and when it needs to, the situation calls for it. And again, this could have easily been overcorrecting, you know, she says a great line, which I'm sure we're going to dive deeper into in a second, but you could have left it at that. And it could have just been, Oh, she's, you know, just cold and it's payback time for bond for being a sexist character for all these years. Mm-hmm. But they don't do that. Kind of like the money penny where they don't go full overcorrection. It's like 
there it's a warmth to her. It's like, look, assholes, we're here to work. If I wanted your petty bullshit, I'd talk to my kids. You know? She's she keeps getting better and better too throughout the series. Like she they add more layers to her. Her interactions with Bond get better. She's hands down my favorite M. As much as I love Bernard Lee's M, you gotta look at it as being like, you couldn't possibly have done better and she found a way to do better she's an entirely different animal i like robert m's uh robert brown's m too that we saw in the last couple of films but it, she's just uh god she's so good no she's yeah it's, it's hard to describe her as anything more than just the complete force of nature as a character mm. as an as a, as a as a woman as an actress as just anything that you want to describe her as she is she almost steals the scenes away from the bonds that she's interacting with. That's how good she yeah. is. But she, yeah. kn- she knows that she's not there to like be, to take it away from Bond, but she enhances his character with her own performances because he has to, he has to rise up to her almost because yeah. she's basic. She's performing so well. Uh, those previous M's in the novelization for this, they're both treated as the same guy, by the way, not that whole like Admiral Hargraves theory. That it could have been like a, a different M. Okay. They, they act Fair like enough. it's just the same guy. So that's kind of a point in the opposite direction. And in the script, they gave her a name. They named her Barbara Maudsley. But they give her a different name in the Daniel Craig ones. So then that becomes weird because it's like you got two guys playing what could be the same character as M, or maybe not. And then you have one woman playing two different characters of the same M with different continuity named differently. Just a, it's odd. You know, the puzzle pieces fit together in a weird way. Uh, Bond's not big on M in this. <laughs> says the numbers aren't a strong suit. He asks if the pictures are live. And she says, unlike the American government, we prefer not to get our bad news from CNN. <laughs> and look, I'm sure that hit in 95 and that hit, Anytime you watch this, but after this year, when I tell you that popped me, I was <laughs> I was dying because it's fucking true. Right, it's a great dig. Goldeneye satellite fires off. I hate the shot of Natalia jumping and going. Yeah, it, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> I I'm not a huge fan of this entire sequence in general. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, the whole fucking building is blowing up and exploding, collapsing over the place, and Natalia's just there still. She yeah. gets to sit there the entire time, and all her co-workers are dead surrounding her and stuff like that. But then, like, the building goes down after the electromagnetic pulse, the um, the fighter jets that were flying overhead, they all come down as well as part of the explosion because, obviously... And the helicopter gets away because, as they explained earlier in the movie, it's resistant to the effects of uh, EMPs. So that's what how it manages to get away without being uh, scathed at all. But then the whole building just, like, explodes. And then Natalia has enough time before escaping to walk over to all the... Mm-hmm. Well, to Anna in particular, cover her over and stuff like that and be almost mourn all the people before she starts walking out. And then, and then the ceiling collapses and yet she's <laughs> completely unharmed by everything. It's just, it's almost too much luck for me. Yeah. They go at least one, if not two or three steps too far, I think. 
maybe if you had like the explosions at first and then she gets out, it might be like, well, I don't know. But they, they kind of put her through the ringer and you're like, it's supposed to sympathize you a little bit for her. But at the same time, every time I watch it, all I can think of is her hair's a mess. <laughs> I don't like her hair in the scene. I would have been felt better if like, you could put it somewhere which is like an area of cover or something like that for her. But she just sits by the stairs and just hopes that nothing's going to blow up in her face. Including the uh, the pipe that bursts right next to her face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just find, like, it, you create this set, find some area of this building where she can basically just hide underneath a table or something like that or hide underneath some sort of shielding while the building claps around it and she can come out from underneath it afterwards. That's the only thing you need to do. It just makes it seem like, wow, she's incredibly lucky that this entire building is exploding around her and it bursts into incomplete flames and she was in the one spot that didn't get touched. Uh, she uh, she climbs up the dish. Uh, she knows that, or Bond knows that there needs to be an insider because he can see that somebody's still alive. Also, the doggos are okay, which is, that's good. Yeah. Which realistically, that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Bond should just team up with the, the pups the next thing, you know. I'd allow it. Back in M's office, new office. We don't have that big red padded door anymore, which is a shame. But it's more modern and, uh, you know, they're kind of going over some stuff. And Moscow's like, nah, everything's cool. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and they're like, that's bullshit. You know, it's clearly something's up. And I love the exchanges here. This is a this is a great scene in a lot of different ways. I love, like for instance, M cuts Bond off. So that's like a power move. Cut him off mid speech and everything, and asks if he wants a drink. He says, "Well, your predecessor kept some cognac in," and she cuts him off again. I prefer bourbon. Just like, yeah, I don't I'm care. In charge here, bitch. Like... Yeah, I don't give a shit what the guy before me did. I got rid of the cognac. I got bourbon. I like bourbon. The bourbon, by the way, is apple juice. And the ice is just glass. So that way it wouldn't melt. And it's just tension between the two. The analysts have ruled out Ormov. Are these the same analysts that said that the gold knight doesn't exist? Or the hel tiger helicopter wasn't a threat? Those fucking analysts. And we get one of the most pivotal best exchanges of dialogue in the entire franchise. Something that people continually go back to. It's a landmark moment. That defines multiple Bond. characters. <laughs> Bond and multiple characters. You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant. A bean counter more interested in my numbers than your instincts. And he's, well, thought had occurred to me. Well, I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War whose boyish charms, though wasted on me... Obviously appealed to the young woman that I sent out to evaluate you. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. I have no compunction about sending you to your death. But I won't do it on a whim, even with your cavalier attitude towards life. Oh my god. So, at this point, and not saying that Callum didn't view Xenia the same way I did. But, like, I imagine that, like, Callum hearing this line was the way I reacted to seeing Xenia. Like, Callum stood up <laughs> and fucking cheered. He was like, 
jumping up and down. You had to love this, Callum. Because you've been like you've been waiting for this. Well, I, I love I love the exchange because it's immediately establishes the relationship between the two. I'm not like some uh, uh, people trying to like portray me as like some virulent feminist or anything along those lines about I want women to have the same character. I want the women to have as prominent a position with this in this franchise as the men do. And and that is something that I have been calling for along those lines. But it's not as though I needed I needed this line to happen and just like, yes, this is the moment. This is the greatest thing that I've ever seen. But I do appreciate the fact that it immediately shows the antagonist, the antagonism between these two and the relationship that they're going to have going forward, which is one that is one that is tense because they have different ideologies and ways of life. But then M is willing to call Bond out on his bullshit. She knows exactly who she's dealing with. And it was almost, in in a way, one thing I did appreciate the most about it, it's, it's a unshackling of the ties of Bond to the the image of what we've seen, what, what Ian Fleming saw of him. I mean, we talked about the fact earlier that this is the movie that doesn't use any of the source material mm-hmm. going towards it. And they basically say, yeah, Bond, written by Ian Fleming, is a misogynist. He's an evil, merciless bastard. And he's not someone who you can actually build. You like realistically, he's not someone that you can build a franchise around, because he is so. In 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 modern eyes, especially as we move into the twenty twenties, is a very despicable human being. <laughs> for the most part, like, yeah, he he serves the country well, and he's suave, and he is intelligent, and all these other like uh, laudable qualities. But then he's also, as says, he's a misogynist and he's a sexist and he's he is a dinosaur. He sticks to his rigid techniques and stuff like that. He uses out-of-date weapons because they suit him best and he is an alcoholic and he's all these other stuff, which you would say, yeah, this is something that I just I wouldn't want to be around this guy. There's, I love the fact that M calls that out of him. There's so much to unpack in it. Like, yeah. it's a couple of lines and it's just gut punch after gut punch of the character, but not in a way to shit on the character. It's like you said, it's a way of like you're melting the character down to bring them back up again. Cause they yeah. call him out. Even just the line sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the cold war because it's like, yeah, the cold war is done. We don't have that type of spy anymore because we don't have those spy games like yeah it's still happening you know like they still do do surveillance on other countries and they still do you know horrible kind of things in the interest of the different countries and everything but kind of like well you're a hammer and we need a screwdriver and you can just beat down whatever you're going to do but you know what it's not going to get the screw out because that's not a nail kind of a thing Sexist, misogynist dinosaur. It's like your boyish charms wasted on me, which she establishes right there. Don't flirt with me. I'm not a Bond girl. You're not going to win me over by like winking and, you know, nudging at me. You'll do that to the Caroline, the uh, one to evaluate you. You can, you know, you can fuck that one and she's going to fall for your charms, but I'm not falling for your bullshit. And I think that's important to establish with the audience too, because 
immediately there has to be somebody in the audience that goes, well, they'll probably eventually get around to doing something because he'll flirt with her. Then she'll, you know, oh, okay, well, James is okay, kind of a thing. Like, nope. But no, yeah, just immediately cut that off and like straight away. And then also, it's just. Once you once you establish that side of things, you, she establishes the not so much the position of power, but a reason why she commands the respect of people, and something that people, I mean, I assume outside of the most ardent sexist that can't fathom the idea that M is a woman and stuff like that, being established, okay, this woman's in charge, she, she's going to call the shots, and Bond is going to have no more sway over her than the old Bond had over like Bernard Lee's character. Right. This is the scene that sells you on Judy Dench. Oh yeah. The absolutely. other one sets it up, this one knocks it out of the park kind of thing. And mm. and she's she's not cold, she's not callous, but she says I will send you out to your death if I need to, but I'm not going to do it on a whim. And that's really important too cuz then that's immediately saying, look, she doesn't have it out for Bond, but this is a dangerous thing. She's not going to be the motherly woman who doesn't want to do the tough call. No, she has she has the balls to do it, but she's not a bitch who's just going to try to kill Bond. And she she even adds that little extra dig of even with your cavalier attitude towards life, like you you practically kill yourself every day, Bond. But I'm not going to be the one that does it unless you fuck up kind of a thing, but that's on you. Like it, it does make me wonder why they sent out Caroline to do an evaluation of him when M knows exactly who he is and every single facet of his character <laughs> straight away, pretty much. I think it was just the bean counter you know, thing. It's the like, numbers, probably like a protocol kind of thing. Like I have to do this. Yeah, we have to sit you down, sir, and tell you we think you have a problem taking orders from women, so we're mandating that you be assigned this. But then she'll tell him face to face, look, like, I know who you are and I know that your shit's not going to work on me. But you guys mentioned she's not going to be the mother character. And that's true. She's more of like the boss. But then she also has that motherly instinct to go and bond, come back alive. Yeah, that is what sells it even more because it's just. After all this kind of stuff. Yeah, come back alive, though. You're on the same team as I am. And the the little smile that she gives is a big thing, too. Only somebody like a Judy Dench would know to do that kind of a thing. Because that smile means I like that fucker. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> their, their relationship isn't cold in, right. in that regard. It's just that she knows her position, she knows what his position is. And that's and she she knows she knows what he doesn't like about her. She he knows what she doesn't like about him. There's no. It's almost like their relationship is one that's clearly founded on a huge amount of mutual respect mm-hmm. because they don't give a fuck about telling each other what the what they what their issues are with each other. Like Bond will tell her when he thinks that she's fucked up, and she'll tell him that, like when uh, what problems that she has with him and the way that he does things. It's just like the idea that he, when she talks about the fact about want you to go get Goldeneye, but we don't need to. If you see Oromov at any point in time, don't make this into a petty act to revenge for what happened to 006. So, like, oh, she knows what you think. He's like, he's going to go out there and just 
he wants to avenge what happened to 006 during this mission. He says, no, that's not what this is about. This is about recovering GoldenEye and stopping the people that could use it again. That's it. That's the mission. Don't go any further than that. Knowing full well that he'll go further than that. Could be a reference to License to Kill. Yeah, because we have established that he is a vengeful person. Yeah, just be like, don't do that thing you just did, you know, a couple years ago or whatever. We saw what you happened, what happened when you did that with uh with Felix. That's another friend of yours. Don't just go kill him, you know. We don't need another Sanchez situation sort of a thing. Yeah. This is one of the absolute best scenes in the entire series. I yeah, just I enjoy it. Every second of it is just amazing. I probably was my favorite scene in the movie just because it's rich in character and you could say anything you want about this plot, but at least they have fixed the lack of character depth that used to be so present in these films. So we go and we meet Defense, Defense Minister Dmitry Mishkin, who was supposed to be Pushkin. What happened? It just didn't work out. Mm. And they just decided, eh, you know. It's probably the best idea to not bring a character back because we're kind of rebooting it a little bit and, you know. But I think that that could have worked because, I mean, Pushkin's not the defense minister in that. So maybe that's another little element to it, too. But, I mean, Pushkin, Mishkin. It's also funny that there's two different people named Dimitri in this movie. (laughs) But, like, uh, Mishkin's okay. You know, this guy. On that Russian Security Council, that's your cameo of Michael G. Wilson. He's the dude that's, uh, as they say in the commentary, the guy overreacting on the left (laughs) with the glasses and everything. Um, Oromov blames everything on Siberian separatists. Yeah, it's whatever. I'm going to tender my resignation. And Mishkin's like, well, what about the two missing techs? And I love Oromov's face of just like, fuck, I was only aware of the one. You know, uh, Boris Grishenko. You know, no, somebody else is uh, in there. Now I got to clean this mess up. Another good scene. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I do. I do like Ormo's face, but it just real the real the sh- the look of realization. It's like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I think it's just. Yeah, it's it's a typical scene where you basically the villain hides the fact that he's the villain within the just the overall context of his position within the government. So it's good. It's a good, it's a good positioning thing where basically you can kind of tell as well that Michigan doesn't really trust this guy because the way he says about oh, why are you blaming the uh, Siberian separatists when you haven't even got all the people that were there accounted for. But that's that little dig. They're saying, yeah, I don't believe you when you say the Siberian separatists are involved. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good scene. I I don't have anything like extensive on it, but load good. So then we move over to another scene here. It's time for a Q branch scene, baby. Desmond Llewellyn's back, and this is one of the most fun warehouse scenes that we ever get. I absolutely adore every second of it. We start off with Q in a wheelchair with a cast, and Bond says, oh, sorry about the leg. What, skiing? Offshoots the cast, which is a fucking rocket. And he just goes, nope, hunting. 
uh, Q at this point is old, and he's like going full fun, senile, kooky old man, and I love it because he's just like, all right, I'm gonna be a little more lax now. I don't have to be as uptight, and he just he makes quips. He finally feels like he's just accepted Bond's, you know, shenanigans, and it all feels good here. Yeah, I have to agree, because Q does feel very relaxed in this environment. He knows that Bond is going to play around with things and touch things he's not supposed to do, but he's just going to be... Oh, it'll be strict with him when he does it, but he just knows that's going to happen, so he's a bit more... I don't say playful, but he's a bit more just used to it and so okay bond put that down or like okay bond you're gonna stop playing with that oh, sure and i love i do appreciate like throughout this entire scene how they like him and brosnan are able to evoke the feeling of people that have done this like million time beforehand even though this is their first movie together yeah you see that they are like they have great chemistry together and the relationship between Q and Bond has changed over the years because back in like Thunderball, it's just kind of like, oh, God, this guy's annoying. And eventually you get to more of like octopusy and it's like, oh, okay, well now we're like, we're buds and you get the license to kill. And it's kind of like, you know, it's my uncle kind of thing. And now it's almost like, this is like my grandpa. And it's just like, Oh, I love, I oh, got, I love, I'm going to gush about this scene so much. <laughs> Q shows off the new car it's a BMW it's got a ton of gadgets inside that we never see because this came pretty late in the process but it's got a self-destruct system radar all the usual refinements as he says and he says I really like how he says this this I'm particularly proud of behind the headlights stinger missiles you know the ones from the last film so it's like yeah just put it in the car you know it's a big deal in uh, so License good. to Kill about the Stinger missiles and Q is just like I put them in the car <laughs> they have another great little thing he reminds him he's got a license to kill not to break the traffic laws which again that popped me because it's just like yeah 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 kill people but to be safe on the road there Bond yeah well, I'd never think of it <laughs> uh it's just filled with gags. You know, he, Bond's fucking around with the laptop when Q's trying to explain a typical leather belt. And Bond's like, oh, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> and he's uh, not one that's got a grappling hook built into it. And he you know, shows off, you know, it's got this repelling cord and whatever to, to match your size and everything. And the guy in the background walks into a phone booth and it's got an airbag in it for some reason. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On oh, the commentary, I forget who it is. I don't know if it's uh, Michael G. Wilson or something. But somebody's like, this is a very naked gun <laughs> in some ways. Just sort of, you know. Q is all, I love how he smiles when he shows off the x-ray document scanner. It's just like, look at this neat little thing. I got an x-ray document scanner. Like, he's having so much fun. Because he's just, again, it's like he's gotten to old inventor point where he's just like, look what I did. Look at this. There's so much stuff you can do now. Yeah. <laughs> I gave you a briefcase one time. That was it. <laughs> yeah, I remember the briefcase with the knife in it? Now I got an X-ray document scanner. Like, you know. There's fucking missiles in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and he also hands him a pen, which has a class four grenade in it. Three clicks to uh, arm it. 
another three to disarm it. Bond goes, click, click, click. I'll just say the fuse was. <laughs> it's like that part with the, uh, you know, um, the key ring finder in the uh, Living Daylights where he's like, you blow it up by whistling a uh, wolf whistle. Oh, you mean like, uh, and it's like, no, <laughs> don't fucking blow me up. That kind of thing. Uh, and then I, I do like how this time he was just more flipping about. It's just like he, he hits the free, he hits the free fit things and then says, how long was it for? And it's not like Q gets really annoyed or upset. He just says, give it here bond. And then just clicks it three times. Just like, yeah, this could have blown up in a couple of seconds time, right in my face. But, <laughs> yeah. Just give it here. Just there we go. <laughs> He says, uh, they always said the pen was muddier than the sword. He goes, well, thanks to me, they were right. <laughs> Great. So at this moment, I'm going to switch over on Skype to turn my video on. And hopefully the recording will go through and I will be able to get this going. You guys can see me, right? Yep. Because I've got one. <laughs> Of course you do. <laughs> this is a Parker Jotter. It is the exact same pen that they use, and that not the you know V pen that they use, but it's the same brand of that. That when I was a kid watching this and everything, everybody was just like, "We need to get these types of pens." And it took me a while to find this, and not too long to teach myself how to do the stupid twirl throughout this whole thing. Because I was just so obsessed with this movie that I'm like, I gotta learn how to do that with the pen from the movie. So, we'll see. <laughs> Jesus, you're gonna just blow up while we're sitting here talking? No, I did the other three clicks. <laughs> so I wanted to show that off just because this is... I've had this since... Let's see. Uh, so I was in like sixth uh, grade at that time. So it might have been, I don't know, like 98. I've had this pen. I've just kept it over the years because it's just like, it's mm -hmm. it's a Boris pen. Of course I'm going to keep this, you know? So, little extra thing I wanted to put in here. Hopefully I can edit it in the right way and, uh, you know, kind of get that going. Uh, you know what makes that pen special? What? It's in stainless steel. <laughs> Delicatessen and stainless steel would be even better, though. Um, so he... Test out the pen a little bit more uh, on Fred the mannequin. Uh, sorry, Fred. <laughs> Goes over. Uh, one, two, three. Runs away. Fred explodes. And uh, Q, knowing that it's, you know, he's Bond he's dealing with, goes, now don't say it. <laughs> it's like us dealing with you at this point. <laughs> right. With the whole, like, it's the total package. Don't say Lex Luger. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and Bond goes, oh, what the the writing's on the wall, <laughs> and Q quips right back too, because he's like he's so good. He just goes along with the rest of him. <laughs> I love that Q laughs at it because it's like over the years he's gone from hating Bond's quips to being like this father figure who just can't help but to laugh along. You know, I love it. And uh, he starts going on this whole thing of, and, you know, do try to bring some of this equipment back in pristine order. And this woman just accidentally shoots with this compressed hair behind her. <laughs> just why? I don't know. She apparently injured herself, the stunt woman. She, like, hurt her head or something. Um, 
and you know Bond's not really paying a whole bunch of attention or whatever and he grabs the sandwich and Huge goes don't touch that it's my uh, lunch <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking it's gonna have like you know some kind of it's gonna be a bomb it's gonna have some kind of like sharp poison. thing pop out yeah like it's the like is actually just a quick acting poison and it's just I, I don't touch that it's lunch, my, you dick. my fucking sandwich <laughs> like the best Q scene. Definitely up to this point. I'm assuming just in general. There's one moment in The World Is Not Enough that I really like for a different reason. Because we're going to cry? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but uh, this is just, this is top-notch Q and Bond. It's so fun and amazing. Yep, a lot of fun. So need to. I just again, I just like the the overall interaction between two of them. It's just like it's interesting because it's just it's been six years since Desmond Lones gets to be in a pre uh, gets to be in a bomb movie. He just picks it up straight away. And maybe that's it too. Like he's just like yes, back here doing this thing. Yeah, and I, he was so good in this scene. And they had recast everybody. And it's like, we're not using the same director we used before. We're not getting the same person who does the opening title credits. We're not getting the same person who does this. We're not getting John Barry back. We're not doing it. So it's like a complete changing of the guard. And they were like, ah, but let's bring Desmond back. You know? It's Q. Yeah. I mean, they they try with uh, somebody else. Ben Wishaw. And, then... and yeah, another one too. Please. Yeah. But it's just, uh, God, I love it so much. Bond heads off to St. Petersburg, that whole X-ray document scanner, meets up with his contact, and they share a little code exchange. In London, April's the spring month. Hey, what are you, the weatherman? <laughs> it's just, I love, he has no room for bullshit, and he's, not oh, for crying out loud, another stiff-ass Brit with your secret codes and your passwords. One of these days, you guys are going to learn to just drop it. You just, Bond come on, like, my car's over there. <laughs> All right. Are we not going to mention the fact this is Whitaker? It is Joe Don Baker, who was Brad Whitaker. <laughs> it's just, it's just like so obvious, and I just thought, I thought it was just—it's bizarre that he's a good, a good guy in this movie. After I loved how despicable a villain he was in the previous one, but it, it works because he's also still antagonistic towards him, calls him Jimmy and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> But, Jimmy and Jimbo. Yeah. <laughs> the but, very okay, rough you're, American you're type. You're like now, I, um, you're a friendly dick towards it. Small, uh, small side note. I attempted watching the 1950s Casino Royale, and they legitimately call him Jimmy throughout that entire thing, and I was just like, nope. Jimmy Bond. Get through this. At least Jimmy Bond. I mean, it's not, it's not James Bond, but it's a little bit better than Jimbo Bond. <laughs> But that too, that little way of interacting, of just being like, hey, Jimbo. It's like, yeah, Bond's not a Jimbo, but you're a dick enough that you're going to just be like, yeah, it's Jimbo. And like, yeah, can me in, some tools, whatever. But he, he says the whole, you know, one of these days you guys are going to learn to just drop it. And Bond says, all right, now you drop it. Show me the rose. Oh, please, no. That show it to me, whatever. And he's like, all right, all right. Shows my rose, tattoo of a rose that says Muffy. And Bond's just like, Muffy? That's my third wife. <laughs> yeah. 
Jack Wade, CIA, James Bond, Steph ass Brit. I love that kind of thing. <laughs> and there's this weird interaction where he a nice move uh, back there and he's like, yeah, nice car, which it totally isn't. But the scene ends with him going, hey, Bond, you do any gardening? There's this whole subplot, not whole, it's not like it's like half the movie, but there's like a couple scenes that would have referenced that Jack Wade loves plants for like no reason. They just kind of thought that that'd be fun. And then they cut out the majority of those scenes. <laughs> so now it's just this weird thing of, hey, you don't, you do any gardening? Instead of being like playing off into a joke throughout the whole film, there's only one more reference of it throughout the entire movie. I always thought that was strange. Yeah. It's this whole deleted scene where he's talking about like, uh, I was planting this thing and like these, these, uh, one type of flower, uh, this huge flowers were growing and it was really great. And all this other kind of, and it's like, well, why was that one of the things they wanted to go with for him? That he loves gardening. I, I never understood it, but their interactions are great. Immediately. They're like, you can tell that they're being like that they're buds and they get along well. And he's the replacement Felix. Yeah, don't think they should kill him. Yeah. I'm, I can't fully disagree with it. Or if this was considered kind of a reboot, this could have been like, that's ah, Felix. Yeah. Uh, I like the little part where they're fixing the car too. That it's like, you know, hand me that. No, hand me that. Hand me that uh, hammer. Not the, the big one, the sledge. He just has to smack the back of the damn thing to get it to work. Uh, Wade says, oh, you know, the main competition for this Yanis guy is this guy, uh, this tough mother with a limp named Zukovsky. Bond says, uh, Valentin Dmitrovich Zukovsky? Oh, yeah, you know him? I gave him the limp. I love that. Very good. Very Bond line of just like, yeah, I know the guy. I'm the guy who shot him. <laughs> kind of like happy about it. You know? Wouldn't you be? Of course. Yeah. It's a great way to introduce another character, though. Pretty quickly, right. you're already attuned to Jack Wade. Uh, my, my favorite, like, American ally, but he gets strapped in. Yeah. And you're... How, what do you like better between Whitaker and Jack Wade, Callum? Whitaker by a million miles. Is that, do you not like Jack Wade or do you just like Whitaker that much more? Wade's just there. I mean, he's he's fun and he has some good interactions with Bond, but Whitaker's like, he's a force of nature on the, on the screen for me. Steals everything that he's a part of. This guy's just, oh yeah, he's just a good side character for Bond. That's me. Then we get into my least favorite scene of the movie. It's kind of necessary, but I don't like it the way that they do it. Where, uh, well, it's not quite that part. It, it's kind of all in the same sort of thing. I'm I'm going to bounce around a little bit here and go backward. Um, Natalia is pretending to make a big purchase for a school of this computer place where she wants to get in contact with Boris, who says that he thought that she was dead. He wants to meet up. Jumping ahead a little bit. She goes to a church. It's all played creepy. The music's weird. There's this old woman praying and Boris and Zenya capture Natalia. I just don't like how they did it. It's never been my favorite part. 
I, I, I think it's totally fine, reasonable to just have um, Natalia just like weasel her way into a building so she could use a computer to get in touch with Boris. Because as far as she knows, Boris is the last remaining survivor from the thing, and they, they're the ones that could help bring down uh, Oromov and everything like that. So she doesn't know at this point that he's in on it. But then he finds her, tells her to meet at the place, and then he brings Xenia along in tow. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary to have that, to see why that Natalia is still, I don't want to say necessarily still involved, because she would still be involved anyway, but the fact that that's the reason why they're all in that situation together. I don't like the music and the way that they shoot the church. That's the thing that throws me off. Because they kind of play off the woman praying as, like, a villain. And it's just sort of weird. It's kind of like, this is like more of like a horror movie kind of thing. Is it too ominous for you, kind of? It just seems like it doesn't fit. I thought it was playing off the idea that initially Xenia was moving towards that because she thought it was Boris in disguise. Because Boris was trying to hide out from the fact that maybe Oromov was looking at them and stuff like that. So maybe he was just sitting there. So she goes over and approaches it and it's actually just an old woman and she hears something, gets spooked out and feels like she might be under, they might have figured this out. And so she's under threat. That's why when she runs into Boris, she's like, oh, it's I'm smiling. Okay, it's you. But then she looks around and sees Xenia behind it, and then she knows she's in trouble. It's Boris. It's Boris. <laughs> I forgot to mention in that uh, that computer room scene, I love the Boris. Boris. He's like, what? <laughs> I always love that a little bit. Um, Togan bouncing back around a little bit. Bond goes to Valentin's place, pulls a gun and out on Zukovsky. There's a deleted scene where he's um, interacting with a guy who's tri- from like Pakistan who's very like, uh, like very good, sir. Very good, like very stereotypical kind of thing. So I'm glad that they cut it out. But he's trying to sell Zukovsky a bunch of guns and uh, Valentin pulls the gun out on the guy and pulls the trigger. And he's like, the problem is the Chinese have been doing these counterfeit ones and the firing pins messed up. Get the fuck out of here. Totally unnecessary scene. I'm glad that they cut it out. But I think we have a great introduction to him. Bond pulling the gun out and him just being like, hmm, Walther, PPK, 7.65 millimeter. Only three men I know use such a gun. I think I've killed two of them. Immediately, you know that they have an interaction together. Same kind of setup as, you know, the last guy that went in there was uh, sent home in uh, a whole lot of boxes. And he's like, oh, I'd go in. Uh, first class I'm sure they'll let me home that kind of thing at his club there's a singer doing a terrible rendition of Stand By Your Man why was this included <laughs> that actress is Minnie Driver which is just like one of those like hey Minnie Driver's in a Bond film oh she's what's uh, what movie is she in what, where's she the Bond girl in no she's Helena the one who's strangling a cat, as Bond says. <laughs> like, what a weird... I, I don't know why it's in there either. It's just, just this like, weird moment, but I love it. This doesn't need to be here. <laughs> I do like how quickly Valentine is okay with, like, Bond's perception of it, though. He's just like, who's strangling a cat? And he's like, strangling a cat? That's my mistress. And he's like, mm, I'd tell her to leave. All right, Helena, fuck off. <laughs> realistically this whole and it feels bad because I really like the way that Robbie Coltrane plays this character I really like 
like the, the tone that he puts in with Valentin is he's a funny guy, but he's also obviously deadly serious as well. And like the little rivalry they established with Bond because of the trick leg and stuff like that. But overall, this whole scene doesn't need to be here. This whole interaction, because Valentin's only in this interaction and he's never anywhere else in the movie. And the only thing we figure out of this is that Janice is a... Uh, Oh, what's what's the uh, phrase? Leanne's Cossack. Um, yeah, Leanne's Cossack. And that's the only thing we gather out of this entire thing that really advances the plot anywhere. And it's a big... It's not like super long, but it's like... It's five five to ten minutes long or whatever, this, this entire interaction. And that's the only thing we take from it that extends the narrative any further. I'll so give you that. Like, uh, they, so if like, they could theoretically have gotten rid of it, but I love it too much to get rid of it too at the same time no yeah again i i like i do enjoy robbie coltrane's portrayal of the character and i think the character if it was expanded on or used later on in the movie or had some other involvement would be really really good i just feel like maybe you could have used this part of the movie we'll take the time that you've used in this part of the movie and add it somewhere where you can illustrate the relationship between bond and 006 more and build up that narrative a bit strong because that seems to be a narrative you're leaning on a bit more in the movie whereas you could just have any character or someone from uh, uh someone from mi6 knowing that the only thing we know about janice is that they're they're related to or or they have some sort of connection to the liev liev cossacks but then who would sing stand by your man <laughs> They do have some great interactions, though. Like he's he takes the piss out of Bond a little bit. He's like a you know, charming, sophisticated secret agent, shaken but not stirred, <laughs> like that kind of shit. And uh, you know, he wants me to do him a favor. I like his line too. He's like, "My knee aches every single day, twice as bad as when it's cold out." You don't have uh, you have any idea how long the winter lasts in this country? Tell him, Dimitri. And the guy goes, "Well, it depends on it." He's like, "Silence." <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> it's kind of like. Bond says, though, and this is a good line for Bond, I think, even more than anything else. He just says uh, that he did kind of do him a favor. He's like, well, it wasn't about shooting your knee. It was about deliberately missing the rest of you. Call it a professional courtesy. I like it. I, he plays around a little bit too. Oh, I'll like, send you the same courtesy. Bang, bang, trying to shoot her out of it and stuff. It's like good interactions and um. He's going to set up a sting operation for Valentine. They could do this whole trade-off with C4, make a lot of cash. The other person will get arrested. They have a little back and forth. What's the honest done to deserve this? He stole a helicopter. Well, I have six of them. You have three. None that fly. Well, who's counting? <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> Valentine's great. I love Valentine. And I'm so glad we get to see him again. Uh, Leon's Cossacks. The backstory behind that. They. Uh, you want to fill anybody in on that, Callum? It's a history-related thing. Um, so as far as I could tell from the little bit of research that I put into it, so the Lienz Cossacks were a bunch of uh, Russians that worked alongside the Nazis during World War II because they wanted to eliminate the threat of communism. And once they were captured at the end of World War II, um, they had a belief between either the British or the Americans they would be given refuge in order to help lead the fight against communism that the Western powers want to do against Stalin. But the British uh, retracted on any promises that they were apparently delivered and were told to essentially repatriate to Russia 
where they essentially had a torrid time under the communist government. A lot of them were executed. A lot of them would suffer horrible existences off the back of that. So that's essentially they were Russians who were en enemies of communism and were trying to use Nazi the Nazis takeover and uh, war with Russia as an attempt to eliminate communism from the country in general. So that's basically what the these Cossacks were were about. The way that they say promptly had them all shot. And Bond's like, not our finest hour. So, uh, Valentine's just like, ah, they got what they deserve. <laughs> kind of a thing. Well, yeah, um, it's, it's one of those weird situations where there's, again, history, there's really no wholly good people. Yeah. In these Histories stories and stuff like that. written by the winners, but at the same time, the winners aren't necessarily heroes. Yeah. It's one of those things that won't appear in British or American textbooks very often because it is something which is in one way distasteful but it's also these people did work with the nazis yeah so that's so, why it, it kind of makes sense that he's like ah terrible people they got what they deserved because yeah. it's like it's, yeah it's just one of those things that where evil just begets more evil yeah there's nothing there's very little good or things to really be taken which is very um pleasing in the whole situation but that's the entire world wars in a nutshell really that's pretty much everybody <laughs> just oh, always yeah. all the time yeah because the world's awful absolutely and definitely There's not enough up. yeah <laughs> but that's the same right <laughs> good boy <laughs> calum gets 10 points for matching the same terrible joke that i was gonna <laughs> yeah. uh bonds at a bathhouse you know for some reason whatever he spots xenia and they have this uh i forget who it was uh, on the commentary somebody mentions it but they're like this seems very much like it's just all the things that are Bond. It's an action sequence with some funny stuff and some charm and some sex appeal because she's, you know, wearing a towel. He's wearing a towel, basically, and they're bouncing around. She's, you know, biting his lip, trying to strangle him with uh, her thighs. You know, you don't need the gun commander. Well, it depends on your definition of safe, safe sex. Great line. She broke a rib during this. Yeah. Famka. Uh, because she told him just slam me into the heart, uh, wall really hard. And the walls were padded, like rubberish, but you know, still happens. So broke a rib for that. And she looks so good here. <laughs> I mean, come on. Oh, good lord. <laughs> is there is there a better is there a better looking woman in the franchise? Xenia has always been, if not my number one on the hot scale, she's like the person somebody has to beat, kind of. For that matter, I think she is so good looking when she's Jean Grey in the X-Men movies, too. Famke's just... I uh, One of the first days that I was up in New York, it might have even been the first day that I was up in New York, uh, I walked by Famke. And I was just sort of like, oh, there's Xenia. <laughs> like, Which I was just sort of like, oh, there's Zenya. Like I, I just walked by Zenya. Okay, <laughs> like you know, took me a second. But uh, yeah, she. And she's uh, Bond's like, no more foreplay. Take me to Yanis. <laughs> we get another play out, you know, kind of thing. Love that scene. Uh. I like that Tell when she, anything? yeah, 
by all means. It's a it's a decent action sequence. I like the fact that he gets the vice like grip off of her by dropping her on the hot surface, surface essentially burning her. Yeah, it's a good interaction between the. It's a good interaction between the two of them. If you're going in terms of just like how hot do I think, then there <laughs> is. I'd say she's probably top five, top ten maybe. Oh. I wouldn't say she was one. I think there's been hotter women so far, so and I assume there'll be. And I know that Eva, and I would put Eva Green above her. Oh. Belinda anyway, so. I mean, Eva. It was, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd also put the um, the other uh, Bond uh, girl in uh, Casino Royale above her as well. Casino Royale is like the only movie that I think we have left that might top this. Solange does not get to the Xenia level to me, but Solange is criminally underrated as far as mm. hot looking uh, Bond girls because she is very sexy. Yeah. But in terms of like other ones that have been in the franchise so far, I'd still put. Um, I still put uh, Fiona, Domino, and uh, Tracy ahead of her. Domino, Donna's up there too. Fiona's hot, you know. I mean, she she nails the femme fatale part, and I think surpasses it in some ways. But she's she's not the same femme fatale as Fiona too, so it's kind of like it's weird because she is equal parts Fiona and Jaws, kind of, <laughs> you know. Thankfully, she doesn't look like she was. <laughs> yeah. So they go to t- the statue park. We get a call back of the whole, well, once again, the pleasure is all yours. Uh, he's, she says that she won't lose sleep over him not calling, and he knocks her out with a judo chop and says, sweet dreams. Fun little moment. Fun fact. There, there are no chops in judo. I don't know how that term became a thing. But... Austin Powers, the judo chop. Judo yeah, chop. well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, they refer to it as a rabbit punch in uh, the commentary. And that was like one of those scenes that they were like, you got to take that out. Like the censors were like, you can't show that. It's like all the other shit. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Okay. You know, whatever that and headbutts. They really didn't like when people were headbutting anybody. So cool. there's weird elements of that. They were concussion conscious <laughs> back then. This park's all creepy. Easily my least favorite level of the video game. And are we, are we going to talk more about the video game? Because like that's a whole different phenomenon in itself. I got a feeling we might have to do a whole separate video yeah. about the video game. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> uh, Bond meets up with Yanis, who's revealed to be... You guessed it. Q. <laughs> <laughs> Desmond, no. Nicky Vanderson. That's <laughs> uh, Alec Trevelyan. And uh, here's where we need to go back to something. How does Trevelyan survive getting shot in the head? Mm-hmm. Makes zero sense. Because the only way it would make sense is if that was their plan at the start of it between him and Oromov. Orem- like he was going on that mission and he was going to act like he was going to kill him, but didn't. But then we're told later on in the movie that it's like, like they have a discussion about it where it kind of figures out that it, that happened at a later date and it just feels, well, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a really bizarre way of trying to put this together. The idea of like shooting in the head, like if you shot him in the hip or in the, the shoulder or something, and then he just feigned being deaf, feigned dying, and that's one thing. But shooting him in the head, it's like, yep, you're not going back from that. Well, he says, 
you were supposed to die for me. You did this whole thing by switching over the thing. Ormov and Trevelyan are together at the beginning of the movie. That's like one of those things. It's kind of like quickly glossed over, but they Trevelyan's in on the plan with Ormov on that mission. But fundamentally, it just doesn't work because he either gets shot in the head or he doesn't. You can't say that it's a blank because technically speaking, at that point range, a blank can hurt and or kill you. But it's also Orimov shoots the guard. So he definitely doesn't have blanks in his gun. I mean, you could make the argument that he's got one blank in his gun. Even then, that's like, man, you got to be really confident. You know what I mean? (laughs) That you didn't fire the shot and all that. But like, if he shoots to the side, then it's like, well, Bond would be like, oh, well, you didn't shoot him. His head didn't fucking explode and whatever. Like, it's really, I don't like the way that they do it because it's just, it just doesn't work. And you can't make the argument that he gets shot point blank in the head and he survives. And that it was like, the plan was, shoot me in the head and I'll be okay. Because it's not like it's like, you know, uh, punch me in the eye and give me a black eye and then we can say that you and I were arguing. It's like, no, that's a gunshot in the head. You can't do it. Or that he got shot in the chest and he was wearing body armor. You know? That you could have done. And that, I think, could have been a way to do it. Where they could have had, like, you know, he... You know, he lets him up and he lets him start walking towards him and he shoots him in the back. And then it becomes, yeah, I had, you know, body armor on. We planned this that I would get shot in the back. So that is one of my big, like, ah, man, one more pass on the script. You could have figured it out better, you know? I would also make the argument about how he talks about the fact that you were supposed to save me or you were supposed to protect me or anything on those lines in the well he just got shot in the head in bond's vision and then bond decided okay i'm gonna leave and watch this place blow up but was bond supposed to kill everyone and recover his dead body and carry it outside in the vain hope that he might still be alive like why is he so caught up in the idea that bond just left him to die whereas in bond's perspective he was dead immediately he's got abandonment issues and there's this is another plot error kind of a thing. He says, uh, am I supposed to feel sorry for you? And he says, no, you were supposed to die for me. The whole like, oh, for England, James, oh, I got shot kind of thing is like, you can try to make the argument that like they want Bond to escape, to not blow up the chemical weapons facility, but to escape. So that way he can say Trevelyan's dead. I saw him get shot. And then Trevelyan can do his whole thing and, you know, be a, you know, a star memorial on the thing and that they don't look for Trevelyan. But then you can't make the argument you were supposed to die for me because he can't survive and tell that story and also die. So it's it's fundamentally flawed. Yeah, was his idea that like he would get shot in the head and Bond would go like essentially go into a blind rage and try and charge them and then would just get shot down by everybody. Is, yeah, he, well, is he annoyed is he annoyed about the fact that Bond tried to escape rather than, you know, try to avenge him immediately? Yeah, it's it's weak. It doesn't work. I fully admit 
points docked when it comes to those things. Yeah. Well, but I do really think that this is a fantastic scene as far as Bond lore and like analysis of the character because I mean, one of the first things he says is, what's the matter? No glib remark, no pithy comeback. <laughs> Just like your Bond, you do this shit all the time. You have nothing to say. He calls him Her Majesty's loyal terrier, a defender of the so-called faith. Uh, Alex upset that the Cold War is over. He says, you know, we fought all these regimes. We toppled these dictators all for them to just go. Ah, sorry. Anyway, it was pointless. And he's like, what the fuck? Like we put I our lives on the line. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that element of it, of him being just like, what do you mean? It's all, it, no, sorry, old boy. It's changed. You know, he's like, no, no, no. I, I saw people die. I killed people. I did this kind of thing. And, you know, and he's basically, he's an evil bond in so many different ways. They're both orphans. And he, he throws in the thing, you know, your parents had the luxury as he refers to it of dying in a climbing accident. So it's like, Oh, it's bond lore. You're getting in the backstory of bonds parents for the first time. Cause they never mentioned that in any of the other movies before that bonds, parents die in a climbing accident in the books. And instead, uh, Trevelyan's, his dad killed his mom and himself because of the whole Cossack shenanigans. He also says, double the seven's loyalties always to the mission, never to his friend. And another call back, closing time, James, last call, and Franklin James. So it's like, half of it's absolutely amazing, and the other half of it is like, mm, that doesn't work out with the plot. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I, th- I think this scene kind of sums it up, and there's a couple other scenes as well in the movie that kind of start the general feeling that I have towards it, which I'm just kind of like clarifying my mind now. Which is that this movie is a very good way of establishing Bond lore, as you say, and the Bond character himself and his own little traits and personalities and the reasons why he does things and the things about his own nature and character based on his interactions with other people. And what we're told about him throughout the movie. But it doesn't, as a standalone movie, at least in my approximation, it doesn't hold water compared to some of the other movies in terms of the way their plot is actually put together. So it's like, it's good in the grand scheme of like telling us what Bond is, who Bond is, what Bond is, and how we're going to be seeing him in future movies overall. But it doesn't, to me, as a movie itself, is as strong as some of the other plots in the other movies. Yeah, if you took the bl- the Bond elements out of it and you made this a Mission Impossible movie, it wouldn't be as good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. I, I can agree with that, but again, because I think it does help and establish Bond lore, and again, the way Bond is portrayed is so good, it's really good as it pertains to this review for this series. If I was watching it standalone, maybe I'd feel different. It is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, period. Like, not even just my favorite of the Bond series. It's one of my favorite movies, period. But, again, I always say, favorite and best aren't the same. I would never argue that Goldeneye deserves an Oscar when it comes to the best picture kind of thing. But I'm, I yeah. could pop it on at any time and watch the movie, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, yeah, and again, it's as we've said that it's a standalone movie. I just don't feel, and again, it, it's it's. I don't want to criticize the movie for that reason, but I don't think that this movie, I don't think this movie works as strongly 
if you haven't seen what Bond is beforehand, and you and if there was going to be no opportunity for a sequel to this, which is weird because a lot of people, myself included, this is their entry point to the series. Yeah, but, but I mean that is true. It does it does demonstrate like a bit about the Bond character, but it kind of I don't think you would fall in love with this franchise unless you go back a little bit, and or at least like this gives you the t- the taste of bonds that you need to then see in other ways or learn more about them. And then you realize, Oh, there's a whole entire series of these movies. I think it does well in that regard of like giving you the impetus to find out more about this character and to start and study it and understand it a little bit more because you do get a lot of the bond mannerisms. And as you say, there's a really good entry point and a really good way of finding out the bond character through the interactions he has with people. But I feel it needs to be a bit more. You need to build on. You need to build on that by the stuff that's happened in the past, or the stuff that hasn't gone forward. Because there's a lot of stuff in the movie itself, which is very much characteristic of. Like I almost feel like to get the most out of it, you have to have seen all of the previous movies or seen a lot of the previous movies to get. Okay, this is the way that Bond mannerisms work, and that's why this is interesting, and that's why that's really good that he does this. We're moving on here. Uh, valid arguments, I think. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Bond waking up. He's stuck in the Tiger helicopter and Natalia uh, is with him. The missiles are going to come right back at them and hit him. But Bond's able to hit the eject button, headbutt it. They're okay with that headbutt <laughs> and save them. And there's this, <laughs> there's this little musical note in this part that always reminds me of Ghostbusters. Something that I'm sure nobody ever makes a connection to. But it goes, it's like when they're, they're shooting the missiles, it just goes, and it's just this one part in this movie and it's this one part in Ghostbusters where uh, the ghosts are all breaking out of the containment thing and it's just it's similar in enough way that uh, there's always this connection with Ghostbusters for me with this movie Ghostbusters is another great movie love that movie Brosnan's Bond is very much like Roger Moore and that he can't help but to make quips all the time he's like you know I'm a little tied up here the things we do for frequent flyer mileage, <laughs> mileage, that kind of thing. And uh, they're captured. Uh, Natalia fills Bond in on what happened. Boris is the traitor. That whole kind of thing. Before we move on to that, what did you think about the whole airplane, uh, the helicopter thing? Any other notes you guys have? Thoughts? No, it just happened, really. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean it's... That, that's good. That's, I guess, a good introductory point between those two because now they're just kind of forced together. I do like the fact that she, like, she kicked at him because she has no <laughs> idea who this guy is. Yeah, he's like, yeah, oh, I thought uh... she was a little, uh, like, a little too extreme at first, but Cal's right, actually. She has no idea who he is, so she's just like, get up, get up, come on. Yeah, mister! <laughs> um... th- but that's actually... Why was she speaking English? No, oh, she's speaking English at the whole movie too. Yeah, no, but it's just a case of like, I know obviously. Yeah, they're like, in Russia. They they should like be the speaking Russian. Russia like they were just speaking English, but they were realistically speaking Russian. But they were speaking English because it's an English movie. Whereas, like, see the fact that she's saying Mister and all that other stuff is like, well, she doesn't know that this guy's English. It could be anything. They're in Saint Petersburg. It could be she, anyone. She could be like, could she a bash? And they'll be like, I'm alone. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Bond and Mishkin have a dick measuring contest, arguing about the lost in art of interrogation, and Natalia shuts them both up. Stop it to both of you. You're like boys with toys. <laughs> She's right. You know? She's like, yeah, bickering little kids. And Ormov bursts in, tries to turn things around, but nah, it's not working, so he shoots Mishkin with Bond's gun, dependent on him. And this cues another action sequence where Bond shoots a lot of people that are arguably innocent because they're not necessarily working for Orimov. They're working like with Mishkin. So Mishkin's not a bad guy. Like, Hey, they're Russians. We're not supposed to think about it kind of a thing. And it is survival, but it is sort of like, well, they're just Russian military guys. They're not really bad. The Bond's just like, well, I'd say this as well. If if this is what the Russian military is like, then why did we ever have any plans <laughs> about invading? Because they just shoot constantly and they miss every single shot between these two people, including a woman who's wearing zero body armor whatsoever or anything else that could potentially protect her. Well, you know why we couldn't just invade or anything, right? Because they have so many tank divisions. <laughs> Especially the ones we'll, in we'll, Czechoslovakia. We'll find out. We, we've got, we've got, got one of those coming up. But, yeah. Uh, but, it, yeah, it's just so bizarre that, like, it's, so, uh, it's to me, it's too over-the-top action-y. And I know there's a lot of those things in Bond movies, but like I said, there's usually a situation where it's the middle of a, a giant fight scene between a bunch of Marines and the enemy henchmen. And Bond is moving in between that stuff as well. And, fight, and he fights, like, two or three people at a time. He doesn't. He's not running away from a half a, like a dozen people all shooting at him at the same time, and they're all missing him. Yeah, at this point though, they are full blown like that. No movies mm. stop doing that, really. So that's just uh, we're in the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> saying the song to a degree. I think I think it kind of levels off a bit with the great one. Then you get Spectre. Yeah, yeah, then you get Spectre. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the free prior to that, it's, it's a bit more traditional in that respect. Uh, Archives is a fun level of the game. <laughs> I love the music in that game and uh, and this part. Great music. Natalia gets captured because, of course, Bond escapes through his belt grapple hook, and this leads to a chase. Ormov and Natalia in a car and Bond in a tank because instead of getting a car chase we're getting a tank thing taking up the action to a whole new level so this is the um this is the more sequence of the movie yeah they? pretty much because it's it's bond standing up top of a, a tank just driving through destroying everything in the way it is it is more actiony in that regard but it's still absolutely like baffling in that regard the fact that he's driving a tank all the way over these places and then there's those moments where he drives through the beer Trot the beer lorry, and then he drives yeah, through they, a roundabout statue. They burst through like, ninety thousand cans of Perrier water. Ninety thousand is what they needed for that, according to the trivia. But and, I mean, he, it, there's the whole thing with the statue, like you said, yeah. like yeah, yeah, where it's like he's now riding. There's like a a Pegasus with a person riding on the back of it on the back of the tank. And then that gets caught up in a bridge and falls on top of the car behind it. And then they drive into the back of the tank and Bond then just notices that and keeps moving forward. It's very, this, this is very 
reminiscent of the Roger Moore car chases. Especially because they loved chases in those movies. I also really love the part where Ormov says, use the bumper, that's what it's for, and they run into some pedestrians. <laughs> it's just like... That that's seems a, like the right thing to do. Use the bumper, that's, that's what it's for, to run people over. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like, as you said, in a lot of things, they basically just try to play all the hits in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, if you've never seen the Bond franchise before, this is everything you need to know about it, but you'll get a bit more out of it when you see the the other movies as well so you see the backstory behind it almost oh we also get speaking about the hits a car that quickly explodes because there's there's a car that drives over another car and explodes just because you know Mm. a little bit of some connery quick explosion type stuff like that no also talk about playing the hits how about a car that a tank drives over a police car and then the person gets (laughs) out of it completely unharmed yeah, it crushes that whole side. There is because no way. Bond can't kill innocent people. Supposedly. Yeah. Unless Even they're Russian they're... guards. Yeah, no, exactly. they're, they're not innocent because they're Russian guards at the end. Yeah. So everybody heads to this train depot. A little bit of trivia for that. They nicknamed the train Darth Train because the front looks a little bit like Darth Vader. So they just kept referring to it as Darth Train. Uh, Trevelyan is all creepy and rapey with uh, Natalia. <laughs> yeah, he's not very Bond-like in that regard, is he? Then again, yeah. then again, Bond has been forceful, but he's usually more suave about it, whereas this guy seems to be like he's trying to do it, but then she's, he's getting no response. It's like, oh, okay, fuck it. Yeah, we shared everything <laughs> together, and he like just like grabs is that, her. Is that basically what he's saying? He's, he's saying that him and Bond spit-roasted a load of women. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> Caroline that's hates like that term, by the way. Get, I think it's so really. funny. <laughs> it's the most that's really the most about backstory we get between these two. It's like, yeah, me and Bond used to tag team women all the time. That was <laughs> That's uh, the origin of the phrase, shut the door, Alec, there's a draft. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Closing time, James. Last call. Buy me a fine. <laughs> um, Friendship. Yeah. They're cool. Yeah. You know, different fr- uh, time frame. He says, I'm alone. He says, aren't we all? Well, except for that one time with that one girl. Remember that? <laughs> well, I just love the fact that, like, like, with, like, obviously he's being very creepy and over, the, like, again, like, rapey towards um, Natalia here. I was supposed to see that as a bat, and that's like, oh, how disgusting, how horrible. And then you cut back to gold, uh, Goldfinger, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at Bond, those little mad jokes he gets into. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, the apologist for it. It's like, no, nah, but she likes it afterward, and it's like, that's not how it works, dude. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> just because Pussy Galore turns to a good character at the end, does not mean that that's not just still just as bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Brings back my favorite line in this whole podcast series. Fuck his magic penis. I hate his magic penis. Courtesy of Calvin. <laughs> I, th- I wasn't sure if you were going to go with, uh, we're going to settle things in the gypsy way or a woman. A woman. Oh, no, that's <laughs> my favorite lines from the movie. The podcast. <laughs> Fuck his magic penis. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Trevelyan doesn't have one because she's not into it. And Bond shoots the train while they're caught up in the accident as well. 
Was that? Oh, that got caught up in the big uh, facility explosion as well. <laughs> you were supposed to die for me. You set the timer for uh, three minutes. My deck blew off. <laughs> uh, you know, you, I thought you were Yanis, the two-faced Roman god, not the Yanis, the one uh, missing dick Roman god or something. Um, he shoots the train. Uh, they're going to ram him, which Zenya loves the sound of. <laughs> I like that little moment. Just full speed ram. Oh, he's going to derail us. She's like, ah. she's just, she's nuts. Um, Trillian says, why can't you just be a good boy and die? You first, you second up kind of thing, which in a different script, it would have been you first, you second. And though they actually die in that order or something like that, but not that way. Can I make a quick note here in that, obviously I write up notes while I'm watching it occasionally. I don't think in my entire run of watching these movies so far, I've written the phrase gunpoint more than at any point during this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's Literally, a good point. it's like every other scene. Either Bond is holding up somebody up at gunpoint or somebody else is holding Bond up at gunpoint. It's just constantly, it's just people pointing guns at someone else. Yeah, the facility scene, you've got the, uh, well, you got multiple parts in the facility scene because, you know, I'm alone, that part, and mm-hmm. shooting. Uh, or I'm off shooting them. You got the gun sequence with like the statue park. You got the, yeah, like held at gunpoint. Uh, there's this weird exchange of lovely girl tastes like strawberries. And he says, I wouldn't know. He goes, I would. <laughs> He's like, really like, I, 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 I did it. And you did it. Yeah. <laughs> and then even weirder, Zenya's just like, hmm. And it's just like, <laughs> it's an interesting character moment for everybody because it's, I mean, he's being creepy. He, this is full blown, like, if you don't hate the character at this point, this is the bad guy, that kind of thing. But I, I think it's his delivery is so weird. It's just, I would, I know, I, I did it. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And then for her to just kind of be like, mm, strawberries. <laughs> like, I like that Bond says, uh, go ahead and kill Natalia. She means nothing to me. Yeah, and that comes, that's also called back to. Yeah, they love their callbacks, like I'm saying. And of course, he's bluffing. He kills Oromov instead, and somehow the train is rigged to explode. I don't know why they would have the explosions for that, why that would ever come in handy, but you're not supposed to think about that. And he's set it to six minutes, the same six minutes that you gave me. So she's like, well, what does that mean? And he goes, well, we got three minutes. <laughs> I like that little bit. Just... Ah, fuck, we're not getting six minutes then. Um, Bond's using his watch laser to cut out the floor. Very cool gadget, one of my favorites. That little bit's kind of hard in the game. And Natalia's trying to figure out where the Boris's password. She's trying to figure out other words for ass. <laughs> Arse and rump and whatever. And Bond immediately like guesses Bond it. Bond just like, it's a chair, you Yeah, <laughs> it's so quick and it's... It, it's another kind of like dick moment, but it's not really because, you know, in the grand scheme of things or whatever. Yeah, but she's just she she's trying all these other words. And just what are you going to mean for that? Uh, you sit on it, but you can't take it with you. Chair. Like, fucking idiot's chair. Dumbass. Like, yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, well, okay. Like I said, you know, whatever. Boris is in Cuba. They jump out of the thing. Um, She says, do you destroy every vehicle you get into? He says, well, standard operating procedure, boys with toys. Love that. (laughs) 
And then she immediately does a callback. Is there any other standard operating procedures that uh, she should be aware of? And he says, well, thousands, but I only pay them lip service. Couldn't help it, right? Do not like this. The lip service line? No, it's too quick. Why are they romantic immediately? It's too quick. Thank God we're alive, Zach. That's all this comes down to. Uh, Pam and all that. I just want us to move past that point a little bit. It's not like... Again, it's just... Do it when they're in Cuba. Or, yeah, yeah. When when they get the point, like you can you can hold off to that point. There's like there's no reason to have this thing other than to have that little line, that little pithy line into it, which I think you can kind of I'm fine living without really. I'd be okay if they left it as standard operating procedure, boys with toys, and then they cut. I'd you be okay they're with getting that. along a little bit more and stuff like that, and then there's they're a bit more friendly towards each other because, like, essentially what's just happened is that on the train. She has obviously been assaulted by uh, Trevelyan, and then she just was there, held at gunpoint by Uromov, and Bond said, "Oh, you kill her. She means nothing to me." And she's like, "Okay, I'll just sleep. I'll just kiss you immediately after, uh, once we're outside of here." It's just, again, it's so old-fashioned. Not only do I agree with you, I also think that makes the kiss on the beach so much more impactful. If that's their first kiss. Because then I have, I, I have a few issues with that as well. But we'll get to it. I, I yeah, it, it's we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, they drive around in the uh, Caribbean, as she says it, the BMW Z3 Roadster. Apparently, one of the most successful product placements in movie history. It cost them three million to put it in the film, and it earned them two hundred and forty million in advanced sales. That's a turnover. That's good it's shit. Bizarre. It's bizarre because it's, it's not in the movie that much. Barely. Yeah. It doesn't even it doesn't do, anything. do anything. Yeah. And it ends up being something that they were just like, Bond's in a BMW. You want a BMW? That's a Bond thing. And people are like, fuck yeah. Well, just the phrase that, like, at one point Q says about it when they're introducing it to the car, says, like, I'm really proud of this Stinger missiles under the headlights. Where are the Stinger missiles in this movie? Yeah. There was apparently going to be some kind of a an extra scene, but they were like, uh, it's, uh, we'll just cut it kind of a thing. We're running along. We got to cut some other time elsewhere. It was just going to be a scene basically to show off the car. So it's one of those weird things because it's like, well, Bond gets a car chase in this, but he's in a tank. And yeah, it's weird. But the, uh, the limited edition 007 model of it was sold out in a day of going on the market. So they made their money way more back, practically a uh, hundred times the amount <laughs> that they had paid. Crazy. Um, they nearly get clipped by a plane. The guy flying the plane was like a seventy or eighty year old, and uh, they they show that on like documentary stuff and whatever. And it's a hard thing for them to do. And <laughs> Natalia says, what is it with you and moving vehicles? <laughs> Just like, God damn, you can't even get this fucking plane soon popping up and whatever. I think it's funny. And it's Jack Wade. He's all happy about the trees. I forget the name of the trees. It's like uh, Banyan trees or something like that. But he's just like, ah, those trees. Like, uh, gardening. Uh, he hands Bond a paper bag of stuff from TZ. <laughs> Go. Yeah, whatever. 
a fun little gag. I like that. Um, I like that he goes that when when Natalia's there and whatever, and he's like, "Did you check her out?" And Bond goes, oh, "Head to toe." He's like, "Right." It's another like, ah, uh, innuendo. And Bond also says, "They don't touch any of the buttons in the car." <laughs> and he goes, "I'm just gonna bomb around in it." And he's like, mm, "Exactly." Imagine like a, a different scene, different scenario where he's just kind of like, "I'm just gonna turn on the radio," bang, <laughs> just explodes, you know? Yeah, yeah. would have been it, that long. Would have been more impactful if we'd seen the car do anything up to that point. We know what it is. It's just kind of a gag. But the car, it falls flat because it's just a BMW, you know. So not my favorite car of the series, that's for sure. On the beach, there's a little bit of a moment of reflection, another poignant scene for Bond lore and examination of the character as a whole. Natalia's doing this like psychoanalysis. He was your friend, Trevelyan. Now he's your enemy and you will kill him. It's just that simple, right? Unless he kills you first. And... uh. I, I think I think this is an attempt at poignancy and trying to extend the depth of the character at the absolute most surface level possible. I just don't think so. The idea of like, oh, Natalia's like, oh, you're just gonna you're just gonna kill this guy. That's it, that that's that simple. And he goes, yeah, pretty much. And it's just like it's meant to be sort of like a reflection of just that that he is a very cold and calculating person. And I guess it does do that to an extent, but it just feels like it's very. Like the way that they shoot it, and the way that like oh he's staring out across the the beach and stuff like that. Across it's the soap sea. opera. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very like like I say, it's very surface level. It's not like Bond has a real moment of reflection himself. He basically says, "Yeah, I'm going to kill the guy that screwed me over." And Natalia gets angry about him, and then Bond reverts to type. Well, she says, uh, "All of this for what? To be a hero? All the heroes that I know are dead. And how can you act like this? How can you be so cold?" And he says, "Well, it keeps me alive." And she says, "No, it keeps you alone." And that's a line that everybody keeps going back to because ultimately Bond is always alone. And despite that, he kisses her and they just they go right to the bedroom. I think you can do the same scene and you can do it better and it can land so much better. And I do think that the lip service thing, if you cut that out and this is his way of being like, I'm, I still care kind of a way. If they could do some kind of connection like that, I think it can work tenfold so much better. True, but again, the way that it's kind of shot for me, it just it doesn't show that he cares. It just shows that basically what everything that she said about him is correct. Like that's the reason that you are alone and all that other stuff. And he just responds by like kissing her really forcefully. It's not like she was into the idea because she was about to leave. <laughs> so it just does it and then she just gets on with it because like she finds it attractive and all that other stuff and then just leads to where it leads. But it's not like, again, it, it just, I don't think there's enough story told between them that she should, she would care enough to get into involved in this on. And it doesn't show that he cares in my mind. It just shows that, Oh, he's been asked a really personal question about it. So he responds to it by just trying to fuck her. Just, again, he's a very surface level human being. What are your thoughts on the scene, Rob? He's got no so, <laughs> sorry. I, I was, so, I, look, I agree with everything you guys are saying, but I, I think at this point in the film, like maybe 
I haven't watched it nearly as many times as Tony. I told Tony, like, I watched it once as a kid, and this was, like, my first, like, adult sit-down full watch. Maybe if I had a few more viewings, I'd be able to go, ah, this doesn't sit as right with me. But, like, in watching this, I was just... Maybe I'll just done as a one of the Bond girls, because I was just, like, so captivated by the performance of Brosnan that none of this, like wait on me as you guys are saying i mean to be fair i'm the one that's sitting there going that's the same sound effect from these <laughs> like I, i'm hacking the movies uh examining them to a whole lot and everything too but it works yeah. like you know it they they're going for something and they go for it and it could be a lot better but i think it gets the point across and then they they're in bed natalia says uh hey on the train you know do you mean what you said with the whole if they, you know, kill me, I don't mean anything to you. And he goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> always call her bluff. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Just, that's the first rule. You always call her bluff. Yeah, of course I meant that. <laughs> it's kind of like... <laughs> I like that part quite a bit. That's good, like, um, playful banter type of... But also, I mean, he, women are disposable in a lot of his <laughs> way, you know, like... Not that he ever wants any of them to die or anything, but it is just kind of like, well, you know, and they get back to that a little bit later on, too. They're flying around, uh, plane's shot down, kind of exposes that they're finding the dish, right? If they hadn't fired the missile, they would have just assumed that there wasn't a dish there and they would have moved on. But no, they had to try to shoot them down and expose that that's right where the dish is. Yep, dumb villains being dumb. Yep. So they crash a movie without that, though. We do no, get no. I'm I'm totally fine with villains doing something stupid and exposing themselves. And we that get monologuing. We get all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, they crash in the jungle. Very difficult level of the video game. And when they regain consciousness, Xenia is sliding down from a helicopter, and she nails Bond with a drop kick, which gives me a chance to plug SmartOutMoment.com. If you are interested in drop kicks and pro wrestling side of things, go to SmartOutMoment.com and check out our podcasts and all the wrestling articles and everything like that, because that's all about the world of professional wrestling. Um, she says, this time the pleasure will be all mine, calling back that again, and she looks Bond's face. <laughs> and, uh, last night I was watching, finally, it, they did this in December, and I've been holding off on watching it until now, uh, finally watched the movie with the commentary of Famke Janssen and Martin Campbell that they recorded in December. And uh, they were like asking her like, you know, what were you thinking about this? And she's like, I lick his face. <laughs> like sort of like this happens. Like, you know, she gets another bleat kind of thing in there. Uh, tries to strangle him with her thighs. She headbutts Natalia, which gets cut out of a couple different cuts of the movie because people don't like headbutts. Again, if you like headbutts, smartcomeup.com. And Bond hooks Xenia to the helicopter repel line, shoots out the pilot. She gets wrapped up in a tree and strangled to death. Yep. I thought it was a bit... I, I guess it kind of makes sense, because I, I like the line afterwards. So she always liked a good squeeze. That's, yeah. That's a good line. That's Another a good line, <laughs> great line. I just thought it was, ah. a bit, it was a bit soon. Yeah. It was a bit abrupt. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Xenia is so good that you're like, oh man, they killed her off already. They like there's a, there's a, there's a full more. like 20, 30 minutes left in the movie and she's dead now. 
Although the good thing about it is you still got two more. You're you're two villains down out of the four, but you you still got Boris, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I do appreciate the way that this movie did space them out a little bit. So you get one at a time in the final like hour, forty five minutes of the movie. I I just think that they could have done more with Xenia. She's the type of character that if they would have chosen not to kill her off, she could have definitely come back. Um, then we go to the control level of the game. Very, very hard. Uh, control level of the movie. Bond sets up a mine. He gets captured. One of these uh, little fuel line type things gets uh, punctured. That's going to be playing a big part. And I like that Trevelyan's smart enough to know. He's like, uh, I press this button to disarm any bombs you've planted, right? <laughs> Just kind of like, eh, same old tricks. Beep. There goes the uh, the mine. Unknowingly, he leaves the grenade pen within reach of Boris. Well, yeah, it's just a pen. And I guess he had to slip a little bit so that the villain could get their comeuppance. But... And I, I think we might have passed it, but I also wanted to bring up that he was like, oh, and I hear M is a woman. Like, again, one of those, like, how was this so far from conceivable that M could be a woman? Oh, it was the Valentine part of the, yeah, I hear the new M is a lady. Yeah. I think. Like, I, I, that was just one of those things I meant to bring up, like, I, I don't understand how people were floored by that. Like, I even told you, I was like, this is 95. It's not like we're in the 70s well, here or something. No, but his character's Russian. Uh, and that, they have a different perspective on things. I guess you're right there. But I, I would say about this scene, like, it's obviously they get around to but kind of calling back to a lot of things, obviously. So he talks about how... Bond finds comfort in like his martinis for all the men that he's killed and all the willing women for yeah. the ones that he wasn't able to save and all that other stuff. So again, it's more analysis of the Bond character and everything. Yeah, which I do like. Um, he says, for anybody who wants to know the direct lines and stuff, he says, "Spare me the uh, spare me the Freud." He doesn't mm. say analyze this, thankfully. <laughs> uh, but he says, I, I might as well ask you if all the vodka martinis silence the screams of all the men you've killed, or if you find forgiveness in the arms of all those willing women for all the dead ones you failed to protect. Which is now the thing, pretty biting. Yeah. I, now, after the thing you said about the um, start of it, about how um, they almost cast, um, well, they wanted to cast um, uh, Rickman. And uh, uh, Hopkins, Hopkins, yeah, Hopkins in it. It's just like, can you hear the lamb sleaming? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that would have been a good, uh, a good, uh, they almost like it almost feels like they wrote that line thinking they're gonna be Hopkins, and so they're just, oh, keep it in, it's a good line anyway. But Hopkins would have been a really great Bond villain, yeah. Hopkins is so fucking good. Ugh. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, I was, I feel it'd be odd almost that this would be six years after. Uh, science, almost about five or six years after the science of the lambs and just don't feel like him in that condition would be the same type of villain as Trevelyan well, they, really the, it, the whole thing would have been he would have been like the older mentor oh yeah oh yeah no, I mean like the older mentor but you wouldn't be able to have like a big fight scene with Bond or anything yeah. like that I imagine they so probably would have like leaned heavily would have to be changed 
they probably would have leaned heavily more into like uh Oromov being more of like a heavy or something or I don't know. Yeah. Uh Natalia's fucking with her plans a little bit. She's encrypting everything. She also bitch slaps Boris, <laughs> which is like kind of cathartic, you know. He grabs the pen, starts nervously clicking it, you know. And I love how shitty he is. He goes, She's a moron, a second level programmer. She works on the guidance system. <laughs> She doesn't even have access to the filing code. <laughs> Mr. Big Dick over here is like, I I'm, I have access to the filing codes. I don't work on the guidance system. Like, you fucking twerp kind of thing. Like, he's, and, 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 uh, I love him. I just love how shocked and appalled he is when he finds out that she's managed to turn the, yeah. the refiring rockets on. Like she's turned on the refiring rockets and yeah, retro like, rockets are firing. Retro and, rockets, yeah. Uh, and it's just like it's gonna burn up over the atmosphere. She, you know, set off the course and whatever, you know. And he's just like this bitch. <laughs> like, kind of she doesn't even have access. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says that he can figure it out what her codes are himself, and so he goes like cracking into it. But he's getting really frustrated because he's not figuring it out straight away. And at the same time, uh, Alan tries to use Bond as a bargaining chip by basically holding a gun to his head, and so we get the callback to the line. <laughs> yeah, more gunpoint. We get to we get the uh, the callback to the line about oh, mm. killing me doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, before which is good. And then like Boris just screams in her face like, "What are the access codes?" And it's just, and then Bond at that point he's clicked it the three times. So Bond kicks it out of his hand, throws it into the liquid to cause a massive explosion. I really think. And this is a movie that, above all else, in a lot of aspects, obviously it's great in a lot of aspects, but above all else, what it does really well is a lot of callbacks from previous things in the movie. It's... I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to say the phrase about how 50% of the time it's fate, but 50% of the time it's luck. Because the only thing about it is that yeah, Bond true. gets lucky here, because the Bonds are all disabled. He's in complete, like, he knows that Trevelyan basically got him. The only thing that makes it worthwhile is that this guy, this one guy, this one guy that he's hired has a nervous tick. That has to be about pens. Yeah. That's the only, and he's got, he's got, fittingly, the one gadget that he could possibly use in this situation that's going to save him in this, in yeah, in this one situation. They, if they brought back that line, I think it would have been like perfect. It's great how it is, but I thought that would be they'll just add another level to it if you manage to fit that line into it. I like that idea, yeah. Uh, the whole tension of clicking the pen and watching it and Bond trying to count like one, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three. Okay, that's one, like that kind of thing. It's like that's a good little tension moment there. Uh, and the you know overacting the whole you know give me the codes natalia like that kind of thing or whatever alan cummings great uh oh there's this quick moment in the elevator right before natalia loads the gun and you know, the whole like i can you know show you that i know what's going on with this gun bond takes out the guard by slamming him on both sides i don't know if this is the fight choreographer or if it's just coincidence or what but this is like a brosnan bond trope I don't even know if other people really pay any attention to it, but it's a little trademark thing that I've noticed. He does it again later on with Trevelyan of like grab a person and ram them on the left and the right side. I've always been wondering if that was something that like the fight choreographer was like, that's something, you know, somebody should do or if it's like a training thing or if it's whatever, because it pops up enough that it's kind of like this might be deliberate. And nobody ever mentions it, so I wouldn't mention it. 
I'll be that guy. Uh, time for the cradle level. <laughs> Bond and Trevelyan have a shootout on the satellite dish. Great sequence, great music. All this kind of stuff is uh, it's fun. Uh, Boris cracking the codes. He's invincible. Just a little reminder of that line so it can come back to pay off again. You know, because it's been a long time since we've seen that part of the movie, so I like that they do that, but he, he again, he's just sort of, I'm invincible. Like, yeah, I'm the shit. I'm Boris. I don't work with a guidance system. And 006 and 007 have a fist fight. One of the better ones in the series, I think. Yeah, it's good uh, fight scene. I mean, just before he gets into the the main meat of the fight scene, Bond uh, jams the antenna. Because at this point, Boris has cracked through, so he, he's able to, he would be able to recalibrate the, um, the GoldenEye weapon if he had the opportunity to, but Bond's essentially jammed the antenna so it just gets stuck in place and it's eventually going to like combust and explode but then you see bond and alec have this this big this i think yeah very well choreographed this fight where they're both just essentially trying to scramble for one pistol that's in the room i like how there's moments like bond grabs the gun and he gets kicked right in the spot so when he's firing at nothing just because it's at like you know, he was going to shoot. So just bang, like into nothing instead of it just being like, oh, you know, it's it's a fight sequence where everything happens to be very, very dancey. And like, there's like the change is just like thrown. Just like, yeah, here's a fucking chain, that kind of thing. Uh, Bond gets the better of Trevelyan, kicks him off the platform, catches him. We get another callback of, you know, for England, James? Nope, for me. And he drops him. Great line. I hate this. <laughs> Somehow, Trevelyan survives the fall. That yeah. <laughs> now I love I love a good falling thing. scene. Yeah, I, I was love, I wanted to I ask you how that goes the, how that ranks in the falling scenes. But part I mean it's it's good in the falling aspect of it, but the fact that he survives is just it might be the most bizarre thing we've seen in any Bond movie because he falls about a good hundred so feet. Now, likely he's going to die from internal bleeding and all that stuff. And his legs all fucked up and whatever. Like he's he's effectively dead, but he should just be dead. Because come on, <laughs> you know it's like they well, didn't need the extra little piece. thing. He shouldn't be in one piece falling from that height. He could be on more of the splattered side of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he survives long enough to watch the satellite come crashing down on him. <laughs> Bond jumps onto yeah. a helicopter that Natalia wrangled up. Very action hero like with that whole bit. Also, the CGI sky. Yeah, not good. Yeah, not not good. And that's uh, three of the four villains down. But somehow Boris has survived all this because you know uh, Natalia can survive all those things exploding around her, and Boris can too. Because he's invincible. Yeah, and that's a great thing. He just oh, you know, oh my god, like all this things going around. I'm invincible. Nope. Canister of liquid nitrogen burst freezes him to death. <laughs> no, that was a really good death. It's like what yeah. you want to see. I mean, it's almost like it's almost more poetic than him being like blown apart or anything like that. It's just the fact that he has to just die frozen in place in that one pose. I, I like it. Curious who yeah. goes to check up that complex at some point and just like, look at this frozen bastard. You know, kind <laughs> of. Boris is, uh, I mean, that's that's a great one of the better deaths of the whole thing, and 
unlike Koskov, you actually get to see him get his comeuppance and everything, you know? Boris, who I have now, in my mind, was the inspiration for the uh, character illustration of Harry Potter. (laughs) And I'm sticking with that. I loved this character. Maybe my third favorite character in the film, because I loved uh, Bond and Xenia as well, but like, Boris was just the right kind of shitty. And uh, we get the whole wrapping up kind of thing. Um, the yes, I'm fine, thank you. Third time that they call that back. Uh, turns out that the place that Bond and Natalia have landed is where the Marines are stationed and hiding out. And which was nice and awkward. Uh, Jack Wade gets the the kind of more traditional Bond line about you know you want you two want to finish debriefing each other. Uh, a negative point for me I think this is a weak ending when it you know I'm not going on a helicopter no plane no train oh, darling what could possibly go wrong uh, yeah I like it better when it's the whole keeping the British end up sir or the of course even better with Moonraker you know I think he's attempting re-entry like I like that better this has uh, ended it on the Guantanamo Bay line what's that you thought it would be better if they just ended it on the Guantanamo Bay line. I think it would have been better if Bond would have said something about the de- finish debriefing each other or something. Oh, you don't like the fact that White said it? Yeah, because it's like, eh, Bond's well, the quippy said guy. It. Q said things beforehand. So. Yeah, but, Q. but Q's Q. You know, like it's <laughs> along with the rest of them, that kind of thing. The helicopters fly off and the love theme of the movie kicks in that you didn't really hear throughout any other part of the movie. Uh, the experience of love, a song nobody ever remembers. I actually like it as a standalone song. It's got that '90s end credits vibe that I really dig. You know how like movies in the that era had like a lot of cheesy R&B ballad type end credits. Yeah, like suddenly Mulan. Go check out our uh, watch along. Just had Christina mm. Aguilera out of nowhere. Or like the end. The end credits version of A Whole New World from Aladdin. Where it's just like uh, Peebo Bryson and whatever. Like, it hits me in nostalgia feels. I like the song. It's a bad Bond song. And uh, I think everybody kind of agrees on that, you know. Uh, I didn't rank that one. I have to rank that somewhere in here uh, on theme songs. Um, actually, I didn't rank the... Yeah, no. Okay, I got to rank that in uh, my other thing, but that's not going to go any farther up and change any of the rankings. Um, That's it. The movie that will not be dethroned on my list from the number one spot. Because as good as Casino Royale is, this has always been and will always be my favorite Bond movie. I think for me, Casino Royale does stand a chance, but Brosnan might be the thing that keeps it up top because especially after going through all of these i now feel a strong disconnect with craig as bond you know like he's just got a different look to him it's just i just won't feel as strongly with the character based on that alone and brosnan is bond in my mind and always will be and this first introduction to him 
was the perfect Bond formula, the perfect balance. This is my top movie. It is ranked, uh, was it three for you, I think, Callum? Yep. I think during the recording of it, I realized something weird, which is I preferred this movie more than Thunderball, but not as much as The Man with the Golden Gun. But I had Thunderball ahead of The Man with the Golden Gun. Really? Yeah, so I had Thunderball second. And it's weird. It's just like that weird interpretation. Actually, during this podcast in between, it wavered a bit. I I kept switching Thunderball and GoldenEye around. (laughs) And then I realized all the callbacks and stuff like that. And I felt like, okay, this is probably overall a better move. But... I, I like I like these the the stories that are told in on Her Majesty's Service and the Man of Golden Gun better than the one that's actually told in Goldeneye. Even though the action sequences are better, Bond himself is really strong in this movie, and you have again all these callbacks. The actual narr- the actual flow between certain things happening in the movie, and then you pay it off later on is really good. I just think that the overall plot of what Trevelyan's trying to do, which essentially, as Bond describes it, is he just wants to steal money from a bank. Yeah, <laughs> you're a common thief. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just find that a little bit overall weak. And again, I feel like you could have expanded more on the relationship between the two of them, and that would have added a bit more impact to the actual story that they're telling between those ones. Because I just I think overall, and I know you're going to disagree with this based on the villains list, I just, I don't think that Trevelyan's that... He's good. I don't think he's super strong as a villain. So I gotta ask, Callum. You don't have to say which one it is, if there will be one, but will there be a movie that outranks Lazenby? As far as the ones that I've seen and know of, Casino Royale is the biggest shot of doing it. I know Die Another Day won't. (laughs) But I haven't seen the two other Brosnan movies, so we'll see. I mean, based on Tony's... Because Tony knows that... They're not gonna. He's not gonna be Goldeneye. But then again, I've got on Her Majesty's services way up from him, so I might have a completely different t- interpretation of them that he does. So, so I can't say for certain about the other ones. I will be I know, incredibly um, shocked if you have Die Another Day or something <laughs> like the top of it. I have seen Die Another Day, so I know that that's not gonna be <laughs> ahead of that one. I think part of the 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 appeal to on Her Majesty's Secret Service is not just beyond the story; it's just the surprise I had about it. And maybe that's still carrying it through. It was just, I was expecting it to be bad because it's Lazenby's movie. And yeah, right. I loved it. I loved every second of watching it almost. So it's, so that's almost a, like dragging it forward to, for me. But I, I, I think Casino Royale, based on what I have seen of it, it has the very biggest possibility of beating it. But I'm still not sold on that. And I think that's a strength of how much my, how deep my affection is for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm still really surprised at how high up Man with the Golden Gun is. Because I, I yeah. love Man with the Golden Gun, but yeah, even now, I got it at number six, and I know that there's two movies, at the very least, that go above it for me than that, if not Upon three or four. Upon it might end up... It, like, if I was to watch it again, I feel like it would end up higher than the Dalton films for me. Like, I loved that movie, and Scaramanga is still one of my top top villains that movie was very good mathematically right now if my math is correct which it's you can't really do the math but i've been trying to do this for the past couple of things about the uh based off of our rankings and kind of like the average rankings and stuff right now based off of those golden eyes number one for our combined rankings 
uh, the list for for lack of a better word, this is the order that it's going in right now. Goldeneye, License to Kill, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Living Daylights, Goldfinger, Thunderball. Then there's a tie of Secret Service and Moonraker. But since Callum has Secret Service at number one, I think that, that means that it outranks Moonraker because there's more weight to be in number one. Um, then there's a tie between From Russia with Love and Gold and um, The Spy Who Loved Me. I'm so used to saying From Russia with Love, Goldfinger. <laughs> uh, From Russia with Love and... Uh, I was going to say it again. From Russia with Love and The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, another tie. Uh, then there's a video kill, Living uh, Live and Let Die, Octopussy, For Your Eyes Only, You Only Live Twice, and then a tie between Dr. No and Diamonds Are Forever because we all just kind of were like, eh, not really glad to get that. But Dr. No does have two things that are higher up compared to Diamonds Are Forever being the last spot and the second to the last spot, and Dr. No hanging at one of the last spots. Rob's the one throwing off Diamonds Are Forever and Dr. No a little bit more. <laughs> and then there's the... That's actually the, the biggest disagreements are Diamonds Are Forever not being the number one or number two worst for Rob's list. Secret Service being number one on Callum's and being the third to last for mine. Uh, for Much With Love being number four for me and the third to last on Callum. Rob almost perpetually balances out the things Callum and I disagree on, which is funny. And there's, like, there's things that Callum and I are exactly dead on where like, uh, well, we're one off when it comes to a veto kill. You have a veto kill one higher than I do. Yeah. But I mean, one. Same in it's like no. nothing. We're the exact same for Doctor No. Oh yeah, we are the same for Doctor No. I thought I saw something like that. And the, Rob and I are still dead heat for uh, you only live twice. Uh, now, now Golden Eye and License to Kill. Golden Eye and License to Kill. Yeah, yeah. slightly you, off. You with, two are uh, a lot closer in your approximations. I'm kind of the one that's stepping out a little bit. My favorite one though is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's Tony's bottom, Callum's top, and your direct middle. middle. <laughs> it's, it's a, and it's so weird because it's like that's such a de uh, divisive type of a thing and it is totally divisive it, it's you know even a little bit with uh, like license to kill and stuff it's funny um, so backtracking on here go to the gadgets we've got the the gun at the beginning with the, the grappling hook and the bungee jump thing we got the limpet mine the binocular camera Phone booth trap, the wheelchair missile launcher, the x-ray document scanner, the grappling belt, the laser watch with the detonator, the uh, Parker Jotter pen grenade, the car that we don't really get to see in action. Major thumbs up. The pen thumbs alone. Up and thumbs also up for the cue scene itself was just the best. Yeah, I'd say thumbs up for the gadgets, except for a major thumbs down for the car. Do more of the car. You have a car. You have a car apparently with um, stinger missiles in it. Use it. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you on that when we get to die another day. <laughs> <laughs> die another day goes. You want more of the car, huh? And then it becomes like, why? What did you do? Oh my god! You can go overboard. Yeah. But if you tell us that it's got stinger missiles, I want to see stinger missiles. <laughs> It's Chekhov's Stinger Missile. <laughs> now, but I think we can all admit nothing has been as good as the Ghetto Blaster. Yeah, I mean, that is that is pretty great. 
on the music side of things, we got the score itself that I think is there's there's a couple great moments, but it's predominantly one of the worst ones. It just it's got a weird vibe to it. It's not like that like super eighties, seventies type of things that we've had in the past that are problematic, but I I'm not the biggest fan of it. I do like some of it quite a bit. The Experience of Love is not a great song. I like it. I'd give it a thumbs up, but a thumbs down for a Bond film. Goldeneye, I give a major thumbs up. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I think overall the music is a bit. I, I'm not a huge fan of the main theme, and I'm not. And again, I don't really listen too much to overall aspects of it. What bits that I did like were the bits where I picked up music from the game. Where it's that little, like, um, I, I don't know how you would describe it. It's almost like this dungeon-y sound one. That, like, Wait, <sighs> Yeah. I really like that. I really like that because it's so nostalgic. And so, so that part of it I really liked. But overall, I'd probably put it thumbs in the middle for music. I'll say thumbs up. Uh, as far as the main theme, that's dead in the middle for me. I, I like Goldeneye. And I think Tina Turner was a great choice. But the other songs are either just far better in general or more iconic and more the the Bond lore of it. So GoldenEye was good. I think they could have done a little bit better. But yeah, no really bad music by my taste. What about Stand By Your Man? <laughs> oh fuck that like <laughs> stand like, by your man like that was like hey we need something cheeky do this <laughs> now granted in a more film that probably would have lasted about five minutes longer right don't be so proud of him <laughs> uh villains we got trevelyan zenya Oromov, boris thumbs up I love Ormov. I love I I love them all. Yeah, I'm not as like Alec is good. Like he's top four for me, but I I definitely won't rank him as high as you did. I I've kind of been thinking about bumping him a little bit lower because yeah, like ultimately I don't like him as much as Sanchez, so. I think probably, eh, you know, I'll make the judgment call now. I was going to say probably by the end of this podcast. That's, you know, now does Sanchez mi- get minutes away. Up, or do you just bump him? Is he now your number three? Uh, Trevelyan is- goes to number three. Okay. Number one, still uh, Blofeld from, from Rush With Love. Number two. Yeah. Number two. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's That's Thunderball, the, um... though. <laughs> I'd say, in terms of the villains, obviously it's a thumbs up. But if I was to rank them all, I'd say Xenia's number one because she was the most physically involved in all these other things in more ways than one. Um, Boris is the most hateable out of all of them, so I'd put him above that. And then it is Alec and Urumov because I think Urumov's just a bit... There's also there, but he's obviously... He's a device to go from the first sequence into the later on the movie. That's kind of only his role, is to be that that thread between the two of the two things. Whereas, and again, I just don't feel Trevelyan really comes across as particularly strong to me. 
Ormov is kind of the most bland. Yeah. Like, not that he's bland, but like he's the the general. Like, you know, I mean, Xenia's the one. She's having an orgasm and strangling people with her thighs, and Boris is twisting the pen around and you know being all like, oh, I didn't system and all that. It's like those two are far more memorable. Most people, if you say, like, hey, like name some characters from Goldeneye. First off, they'll be like, yeah, Bond. And it's like, okay, yeah, fine. They'll probably say Zenya and Boris. Even more so than, you know, Trevelyan or, you know, whatever. Then they might say Valentine. That we'll get into him in a minute, though. Um, so our current rankings for main villains are, for me, at the very least, my top five are Blofeld from From Much With Love, Fran Sanchez, Alec Trevelyan, Blofeld from Thunderball, and Francisco Scaramanga with Rosa Klebb just barely not making that, but Rosa Klebb is so fucking great too. And I have Koskov right underneath that too. Um, Rob's is Sanchez, Scaramanga, Goldfinger hanging on at number three. Uh, Trevelyan, Blofeld from From Rush With Love, Zorin being really high up on there too. I, I enjoy <laughs> And Callum is currently adjusting his, so I'm waiting for him to get done adjusting his. Yeah, he, yeah. I just, I just realized that I want to put Trevelyan down from where I originally had it. So you, you originally had him at number five, he's now number seven. seven. Uh, you go with Sanchez. So Sanchez, if we were doing the ranking of the villains, which I might do at some point, Sanchez would be our number one because it's a number one, a number one, and a number two. Uh, number you've got Doctor Kananga from Living Let Die. Mm-hmm. Uh, several spots above. I mean, I, I love Kananga too, but it's like, uh, yeah, if you got a list of a bunch of things that you like, it, it's kind of seems ridiculous to be like, oh, my number. 12 or something and it's like yeah but i fucking love him like you know it's, it's kind of like i just like how over the t- over the top he is you got a uh, scaramanga at number three so scaramanga probably would be our number two if we were doing a combo thing um depending on the math behind that zorin high up there number four zorin's great yeah i love zorin still surprised that you got largo as high up he's really good and he gets he's very high up for stuff, me too. yeah He's very he's very actively involved in fighting Bond. He's someone that can match Bond physically as well as being the, one the main villains. And also, he's the one that number two is based on from Austin Powers. So I have to love him a bit. Yeah, but who does number two work for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you tell him, buddy. <laughs> you sure that turned his boss? Now you guys haven't done the henchman rankings. I have mine. That's not that doesn't matter. We need to do that right now or anything like that. Um, Zenya is hovering around. I don't know where I'm going to fully place her. I kind of have her as she's either going to go underneath Jaws and my number four spot, or she's my number one above Fiona. It kind of all depends. But there's a thing about Fiona that I like a little bit better, where I'm kind of like she's a little bit more cerebral, and I kind of like that. Odd job is a little bit more like dynamic as far as the way that you see him, you immediately know what he's all about and everything. So Xenia is somewhere between number one and number four for me. Boris is only a couple spots below. He's right around that. I don't know if I'm going to put him above or below Mayday, but Boris is fantastic. He's just so good. Uh, Ormov, I have a little bit lower than that. I've got Ormov below like Milton Crest, for instance, and Truman Lodge. Rob's currently got a list of knickknack. Ajab, ajab, ajab. And then three ajabs, <laughs> but it's going to be knickknack. 
uh, Boris, Zenya, and Oddjob, and I'll eventually get around to filling the rest of this out. Yeah, I can't imagine, for instance, that anybody is going to have, like, Scarpine or Chang really high up on the list, you know? Uh, Knickknack, uh, first of all, is the character that gave us Mini-Me, essentially, and Mini-Me is one of my favorite things ever in pop culture. And Boris was just so much fun. I love that part in uh, Austin Powers 3. Hey, it's Mini-Me, come and get me. <laughs> Hey, asshole, like, kind of thing. <laughs> uh, allies. We have... We have. We actually have to kind of um, break those down, because we have Money Penny, but it's a new Money Penny. Um, currently, with only one appearance. How did she rank to you guys on the Money Penny scale? She did a lot of restoring the original Money Penny. And a lot of what I enjoyed about the Money Penny Bond interacting, even with the short time she was on screen. So this Money Penny ranks very high. Yeah, I thought that she did very well in the one interaction that she really had throughout the entire movie. It really echoed back to the original like flirtatious banter behavior between uh, Lois Maxwell's Money Penny and either Connery or Moore or anybody in anybody in that field. Thumbs up on Money Penny on my end. Uh, we've got Q, better than right. ever. Better oh, than good. ever, dude. Yeah. Q is iconic. He, he, he just like he was so happy to be back. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. There and he are just two more movies left, and I'm not ready. Yeah, especially if you watch that document, not that documentary, that little video package. I did what I did watch that video package. Oh, you did? Yeah, I found it on YouTube. Yeah, that's yeah, uh. It's, uh <laughs> That's that's a thing. We're gonna get to that when we get to that. Uh when we get to Twine. Um He's just having so much fun and it just it, it comes through the, the screen. We got Bill Tanner. I like Bill. Yeah, it was great. We got Jack Wade. I like Jack Wade. Not as good as uh his first appearance. I like Jack Wade better than uh Whitaker. Really? Mm-hmm. Whitaker's never been one of the, my stronger villains. I, I think to, to I, I mean, I've always loved Whitaker, so Whitaker would be high up for me. I don't think this guy stands out as much, but he's he's a bit fun for what he is. He's certainly not going to stand out the next time we see him. <laughs> no, I imagine not. Um, yeah, Jack Wade to me is between General Gogol and Tiger Tanaka on my rankings. Gogol, I mean, he's got multiple appearances, so that works in there. But um, again, it's one of those things. That there's there's 25 movies to these, so it's like something like Karim Bay is like, man, Karim Bay, one of the absolute best. And I've got him at number 10, or number 9. It's like, it seems crazy to go, wow, there's eight people above Karim Bay for you, and I I put Valentin above Karim Bay. I can't do that. Karim Bay's too good. Karim Bay was good. Karim Bay's great. I love me some Valentine, and I'm glad that he comes back too. Um, my number one ally is M. Oh yeah, M's, M's yeah, the man. She's dead. great. 
Judy Dench, Barbara Maudsley M, because we have four M's, we have five M's that we're going to talk about in this ranking type of thing. We got the Servant Miles Messer V, we've got the potentially Admiral Hargraves one, Barbara Barbara Maudsley, and we've got um, the Craig era, Judy Dench, you know, that kind of whole thing, Olivia Mansfield. And she is just, uh, it's hard to say she's better than Q and Moneypenny. But it's like, it's almost like they're, they're ingredients that you all, you need all three of them. And that's why there's a big problem with the Craig films for me. Cause it's like, you're missing two of the ingredients. You can't bake a cake without sugar and baking powder and whatever like that. I don't care what kind of weird zucchini cake you make, you know, <laughs> but she's, she's fantastic. Top spot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the best of the time this is over, but loved it. Yeah, if there's any any indication of like the the base level and she only gets stronger from here, then she's gonna be number one by the end of it. Like Bernard Lee, of course, but yeah, I think that Judy Dench is such a strong character, such a strong actress. On the Bond girls side of things, we have Caroline, the. Uh, evaluator and we got Xenia and we've got Natalia thumbs down in the aspect of memorable like you know super great looking uh, bombshell type of thing when it would come to Caroline but she's not supposed to be that kind of a character so Caroline gets a thumbs up for me because she is the girl that bonds just like sweeping off her feet kind of thing She's not a high thumbs up. She's not like a major character or anything, but I think that she works. Yeah, she's fine. It's like in her little scene where she's just like terrified of everything the Bond's doing, but she finds that a bit of a turn on still as well. I mean, she should get evaluated. Yeah. She clearly likes dangerous men. Uh, Everybody who's come across this franchise should be evaluated. (laughs) She just enjoys a spirited ride. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Natalia is one of the ones that I I feel is kind of weaker in some ways than some of the other ones, but I still have her higher up than some other characters because she does contribute. She does do things. She, she speaks for herself in quite a bit of scenes. So she's not just like, I don't know, like, uh, Looking at the list, like uh, Helga Brandt, like uh, she's supposed to be a femme fatale. We got so many better ones. Or Tilly Masterson. She's fine, but she gets killed immediately. So I have Natalia at like a number 10 or so spot right now. I got her below Pam, for instance. Not as good. Yeah, I haven't... uh... The girl side of things is one of those, like, I would really have to sit down and take some time to think about and, and rank, but overall for this movie, definite thumbs up. Um, I've got Natalia sitting at, again, seven. Uh, getting, rid, getting rid of the money penny factor. Yeah, six if you factor. get rid of money. Yeah. yeah, six. I've got a higher than Xenia as well, because I think that she was... I think she played her character very well with like being someone who had to go through this adversity 
and works well with Bond. She's the one that is, in the end, is the one that actually is the one that brings down Goldeneye by setting the codes off in the first place. And yeah, she's actively involved in everything. I don't, again, I don't think her character arc is as strong as some of the other ones, which I've obviously put the ones that I think are better ahead. But yeah, I, I think that she was a very strong lead Bond girl overall. Now, I've got Xenia higher up because overall I just like the character better. But if we're, that's where a lot of the nuance comes in. If Do you rank a Bond girl based off of the Bond girl? Do you rank the Bond girl based off of the character? Do you rank the Bond girl based off of the hotness factor? Do you rank the Bond girl, ba- you know, that kind of a thing. So it's it's kind of, you know, clarification sort of things. Xenia's obviously not a Bond girl in the same kind of way as Kara or Pussy Galore or doctor or goodhead or whatever but if i rank based off of pure character i like xenia so much so she is my number four if you don't count money penny at the moment right now based off of almost entirely the hotness i do have xenia <laughs> on the top of the list because she's like yeah yeah, she Zenia is number it. one on my hot list right now. <laughs> yeah, Zenya was it. Like Zenya, then Domino, then Kara, then Fiona, and then Plenty. And then I can do the whole list. I'll, eventually I'll show you guys the list. Uh, you know, everybody will see the list at some point. But um Bond Girls overall, thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Action and humor, thumbs up on my end. I think that it's very funny. I think that it's not silly in how funny it is. And I think that the action is the best action so far. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of very good action in the movie, so definitely a thumbs up there. Fume um, is still thumbs up. I think it's a little bit it's a little bit drier than some of the stuff we've seen beforehand. Not as dry as obviously as Dalton stuff. It does try and revive the humor from that aspect. I'd say that the most humor is with Boris, really. Out of anything. Invincible. He's the comic relief villain. Yeah, was it good for you too? <laughs> and like, even though he's very smarmy, he's it's not like in License to Kill or Living Daylights just, like, with Goscovs, you mean? Yeah, okay, it was the Living Daylights where you just wanted to see that guy die and he doesn't. Here it was like, oh, you just what a piece of shit you are, and you get to see him die. Yeah, <laughs> chewing the scenery for sure. And um, I don't think it needs to even go uh, said, but uh, shaken, not stirred. Shaken. Oh, yeah. Best. Yep. So. Goldeneye, that is uh, this was the one that I was like, this is going to be the longest one. (laughs) And it was. (laughs) Trust me, I don't have as much to say in comparison to, you know, like uh, Quantum of Solace, Uh, especially when it comes to like Quantum of Solace. I'll be like, you know, well, that just sucks. And like that kind of thing. Casino Royale might be one that we dive pretty deep into, but just the pure like amount of love that I have for Goldeneye was like this one's gonna be a, a long one. Uh so if you stuck with us this entire time, I commend you for what is probably a multiple sit-down kind of uh, podcast thing. And uh, you know, check about the other reviews. I'm sure I say a lot of the same opinions, but we do have, I think, two other reviews that are on here in some fashion. Um, we uh, we'll 
we'll probably do something based off of the video game at some point. I don't know what. I don't know if I'm going to try to like play the game in some fashion. I don't know if I'll try to do like just a discussion about the video game or both. But one way to make sure that we do something is to donate to the Patreon. And if you really in particular want to make sure that we do something on the playing the game side of things, that is the best way to do it. Because then I can really take the time to look into how I can record that and how I can set up the ability to do any of that. Because I've never actually tried to do that before. So... Um, you know, whether it's GoldenEye Source or the XBLA version of it or some other kind of emulator or something, you can try to figure that out. Any other thoughts you guys have about the movie itself before we move on to plugs? Um, easily one of the ones I was looking most forward to on this ride. The one that I really jumped the gun in terms of watching, like I, as soon as we wrapped up recording... Uh, to kill i was pretty much watching goldeneye and it didn't disappoint in any way and as far as the video game it's like a completely different legacy in itself people who don't even like bond love that game and it's this franchise man it keeps growing i feel like as we go along and you could really see why this is up there with the star wars and those kind of institutional IPs. Just great. Yeah, this was a, um, it's again, I don't want to feel like I'm always the one that's like shitting on the movies that everyone else likes and stuff like that. But it was definitely, it was a fun, enjoyable watch of a movie, a lot of action, a lot of good humor, a lot of bond being Bond being one of like the best versions of Bond, I think that Piers Brosnan really nailed it throughout the entire movie and don't want to take away from his performance at all. But as it has happened the way it falls for me, it's just a case of there's still two movies ahead of it. And as far as what you guys have told me and what I could expect, then it means that the Pierce Brosnan movies won't, none of them will take the number one spot for me. <laughs> uh, but, I, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but again, I'm someone who is like bucking the trend on a lot of other things as well. True. So maybe I'll be, I'll prove that wrong. But, but yeah, I'm, I, it has set me up nicely to try and look forward to the remainder of the ones because I know how it derails by the end of this, this, this portion of the Bond franchise. It's one of those things too, Super where fried. I like, I'm not anticipating that it would be the case. I'm still kind of harping on that. I think that, uh, that Rob might like the Raw is not enough quite a bit. Uh, not that he would put it number one, but I, I think he's going to kind of be like, I really like this one, you know? Um, but you are an outlier when it comes to some of these, Callum. And it might be one of those things where at the end of like reviewing Tomorrow Never Dies, if you end up being like, I really, really like that one. And like, I like a lot of elements about Tomorrow Never Dies. So I'm going to be saying a lot of positives, but I'm going to say some negatives as well. And it's just, it might be one of those things where it might just be like, uh, I mean, everybody has their own opinions and stuff, so no, there's no right or wrong kind of a thing. But when you, you, you said like bucking the trend about some things, you took me by surprise with From Russia with Love. So you might take me by surprise when it comes to something like A Tomorrow Never Dies, where it might end up being way higher up on your list than I thought that it could be. Not that I'm expecting it to be like the last one or anything, but it's interesting. So I'm looking forward to that. And all the other ones, of course, too. That's why we're doing the series. <laughs> Um, 
check out all the stuff that we got coming your way though we've got not only just the review to kill stuff but we got other things that are coming our way uh and that have already been there we are recording this on april 24th so by now you definitely have some other podcasts and some other kind of movie related content that you can check out i don't know exactly when you will be hearing this but it's at least the towards the end of may so um I don't know what's happening towards then, but if you stay tuned to the channel, you follow the Facebook and the Twitter, you follow me at Tony Mango, then you will see whatever's happening on Fanboys Anonymous and the same thing for Smart Out Moment. And if you are interested more in the pro wrestling side of things, definitely check out what these other two guys are working on that are hovering around that spectrum and diving deeper into some of those things with uh, with wrestling. Specifically for uh, me, I work at Fightful.com and I am... Not shy about this. Nobody does it better when it comes to wrestling than Fightful. And Sean Ross Sapp works his ass off with Fightful Select. So you should definitely check that out if you're into the pro wrestling side of things. We should be into either Backlash or Money in the Bank territory. So check out all the fun stuff going on there. Stay tuned to everything Smart Out Moment as I'm sure we'll do a fan track to the ladder match. We've got a lot of great stuff coming your way, including some stuff that is already in the archives with myself and Callum Wiggins. Right, Callum? Yes, of course. Over on the Smart Cat Moment archives, you can check out over on the YouTube channel or through the podcast feeds. You can listen to both 2001 A Wrestling Odyssey and the Paul Heyman Smackdown podcast. So if you enjoy retro wrestling content sitting right in between around about 2001 and early 2003, those are the two podcasts for you. We cover a lot of the stuff that's going on in those periods of time, a lot of the news, a lot of the, sh- the matches and just shows that took place in between that period. So check that out uh, over on the smartcamoment.com website. You can uh, visit all the weekly articles on there, including the power rankings, which is my weekly contribution to the, there. So you can check out all of the rankings of the wrestlers every single week between now and next WrestleMania. So started off, uh, only a couple of weeks ago and there's a long journey to go so to see how that fluctuates over the course of the year make sure you're constantly going back to that and you can follow me on twitter at wigmeister14 and that's going to do us in for this edition thank you again for listening drop your comments below hit that like button hit that subscribe button and stay tuned because james bond and the review to a kill podcast will return with tomorrow never dies mm-hmm.